Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches, November 1914 to August 1923, by Benito Mussolini. Translated by Bernardo Quaranta di San Severino. The Ruhr, the Conference of Lausanne, and the Port of Meme. Speech delivered at Rome, 1st February 1923, before the cabinet. The Prime Minister. With reference to foreign affairs, the situation, as far as Italy is concerned, cannot be said to have altered much in the interval which has elapsed between the last cabinet meeting and today. The German resistance on economic grounds has provoked aggravation of the measures, both military and political, which are being taken by France and Belgium, but from which Italy, following her previous line of conduct, has kept apart. The complications which were or could have been feared so far have not occurred. Fresh factors have not entered into the close duel which is being fought on the Ruhr. Russia has not altered her attitude as a state, although the dominating party continues to give clamorous verbal demonstrations of solidarity with the German proletariat. The serious disquietude which had been manifested by the prowess of the little Entente is diminishing. There had been rumors, more or less without foundation and spread, perhaps with the object of producing complications, of plans for repeating in Hungary what France had done in the Ruhr, which were attributed to one state or another. These have given Italy the opportunity of confirming and clearly establishing her attitude of opposition to any movement which could extend the conflict to other zones or give the opportunity of attacking the validity of the treaties of peace already concluded. The Italian government has been and is following attentively the cold situation on the Ruhr, above all as regards its reaction on other events. I can say that all internal measures, reduction of the train services, including those from abroad and contracts for fresh supplies, have been quickly and diligently carried through because whatever may happen, no paralysis of our industrial activity or of our communications must result. In connection with the supplies of raw materials, I have the pleasure to announce to the cabinet that the Italian government has succeeded in concluding a favorable agreement with the Polish government for oil. As I said last time, the events of the Ruhr have had the most serious consequences in the developments at the Conference of Lausanne, which has now arrived at its last stage. The Italian delegation has carried out successful work there with the object of obtaining peace in the East. The Italian government has not been among the last to recognize the legitimate rights of Turkey and thinks today that it would not be in her interest to entrench herself in a position of absolute intransigence. It may be that Turkey has not realized the extensive program that was laid down by the Grand National Assembly of Angora, 
but it cannot be denied that a great part of that program has been put into execution since the Turks from Angora have returned not only to Smyrna, but to Constantinople and Adrianople, and have got their way, it can be said, in questions of the highest importance, such as that of the domination of the Straits and that of capitulations. Taking as a whole, although the general situation continues to be very critical, there seems to be a small ray of light upon the horizon. The action of the Italian government is directed decidedly towards the policy of general peace. As regards the question of Memel, the Italian government has pursued a temperate policy, inspired by principles of equity and justice. It is not possible to do less than recognize the rights of Lithuania over that port, but the Lithuanian government cannot be allowed to substitute itself for the allied powers in deciding its fate. We, then, have remained in an attitude of solidarity with the allies in the measures taken for facing the situation there, but we have, on the other hand, tried effectively to reduce those measures to the necessary minimum, avoiding those of such a nature as to provoke further complications. End of section 41. Section 42 of Mussolini as Revealed in His Political Speeches 6 February 1923 Ratification of the Washington Treaty of Naval Disarmament The Prime Minister Honorable Members I do not think it is worthwhile losing time in a general discussion upon the qualities of men, good and bad, and upon the question as to whether the War of 1914 will be the last or the one before the last. That would be perfectly idle and would only lead to academic discussions. Let us instead turn our attention more practically to the project of law which I have presented. The Convention of Washington was closed a year ago. Now, the delay in the ratification of the treaty on the part of Italy has already had ambiguous and I should almost say unfavorable consequences in the international world. It would be a good thing then to proceed at once to complete this act. The conference at Washington shared the fate of all the conferences. It opened with great hopes, flashing before our eyes the possibility of eternal peace. Then the concrete results frustrated these hopes. I confess that I do not believe in perpetual and universal peace in the life of the peoples notwithstanding ideals noble and worthy of respect. There exist the permanent factors of race and the greatness and decadence of nations, which lead to differences often only settled by a recourse to arms. Now, it is not a case of weighing these conventions with a view to peace. They represent a breath, a pause, and it is useless to inquire if they have been laid down for idealistic or for business reasons. In any case, I declare that Italy did well to adhere to this convention. If she had not done so, we should have appeared in the eyes of the world as imperialists and jingoists, which is far from what we have in our hearts and minds. The fact that the government asked the chamber for this ratification gives an idea of the general trend of the fascista foreign policy. Applause. The ratification of the treaty is approved of without discussion, only the communists being against it. End of section 42. Section 43 of Mussolini as Revealed in His Political Speeches 6 February 1923 Message from the Honorable Mussolini 
to the italians in america upon the occasion of the signing of the convention for the laying of cables between italy and the american continent the national government which has worked indefatigably for three months to set the country going upon the path to better fortunes has in these days signed the convention for the laying of cables which are to put our country into communication with you who represent it in the numerous rich and patriotic colonies beyond the atlantic the enthusiasm for this work so necessary to our life as a great nation seemed at one time to have died down but to-day with the rise of youth upon the scenes of italian politics that which it seemed would be relegated to some remote future has been transformed into a concrete and almost immediate reality it is not you who suffer almost more than any the pangs of homesickness for our adored country who need to be shown the usefulness and necessity of this undertaking which will be carried through in the shortest space of time possible will render frequent daily and above all free the communications between the forty million italians who live in our beautiful peninsula and the six millions who live beyond the ocean all the italians who can give financial and moral support must cooperate so that the undertaking may secede the italian government does not appeal in vain to its emigrant citizens because it knows that distance makes the love of their country stronger and more intense the cables which in two or three years will bind together italy and the americas across the boundless ocean are like a gigantic arm which the country stretches out to her distant sons to draw them to her and to make them share more intimately her griefs and her joys her work her greatness and her glory mussolini rome sixth february nineteen twenty three end of section forty three section forty four of mussolini as revealed in his political speeches for the carrying out of the treaty of raballo prefatory remarks to the deputies h february nineteen twenty three accompanying the project of law presented by the honorable mussolini minister of foreign affairs and prime minister the prime minister honorable members Last November, I began my statement to Parliament of the program of the national government as regards foreign policy with the following words. The fundamental principle upon which our foreign policy is based is the treaties of peace, once signed and ratified, must be carried out whether they are good or bad. A self-respecting nation cannot follow another course. Treaties are not eternal or irreparable. They are chapters and not epilogues in history. To put them into practice means to try them. If in the course of execution they are proved to be absurd, this in itself may constitute the new element which may open the possibility of a further examination of the respective positions. The preceding government had undertaken to present to Parliament the agreements concluded at Santa Margarita and signed at Rome on the 23rd October last. This undertaking I now fulfill. These agreements 
contrary to what has been stated by someone, do not contain any new political pledges on the part of Italy, but regulate the relations between the commune of Sara and the surrounding territory of Dalmatia, make clear some recognized rights on the part of citizens who are Italian by option and endeavor by means of friendly agreements to find the possibility of giving and assuring a peaceful and industrious life to the troubled city of Fiume. Owing to the way in which it is drawn up, whether on account of its diffuseness in those clauses which touch upon territorial questions, and its brevity in others, or whether on account of the seeming precedence given to the task of the commissions which ought, according to the letter of the treaty itself, to proceed exclusively to the settlement of territorial questions, while for the commissions to which were entrusted the settlement of other questions, limits were established, a priori, of a certain amplitude. Article 6. The Treaty of Rabalo has given Yugoslavia the opportunity of maintaining that it was necessary first to effect the evacuation of the territories over which the sovereignty of the Serbo-Croat Slovak kingdom had been recognized, and then of proceeding to the stipulations of the agreements for the regulations of the new relations between the two countries. They tried to justify this with arguments of a political nature, that is to say, they saw, in the first place, that their position met within various Italian political spheres to the transactions concluded at Raballo, had stirred up the discontent and opposition of the Yugoslavs to the treaty. Secondly, that the suspended execution of the territorial clauses, evidently attributed to some Italian parties, had given the impression to the Yugoslavs that Italy did not want to proceed to the carrying out of the treaty. Thirdly, that, in consequence, the parliamentary opposition to a policy of friendliness towards Italy had become very marked and rendered extremely difficult the adoption of direct provisions for the favorable regulation of these relations. And lastly, that if, instead, the prearranged course had been followed, that of proceeding, say, first to the evacuation of the territories, a radical change of position would have been realized, which could have allowed of the conclusion of more favorable agreements. In Italy, on the other hand, the discontent was increased by an idea, entertained by many, that the new state, which had also arisen as the result of Italy's victorious war, ought to give to the citizens, and in Italian interests, privilege, no less great than those granted by the Austro-Hungarian monarchy, not taking into account that the national state, newly formed, may have particular exigencies and susceptibilities. The contrast of such opposite tendencies ended by creating in the relations between the two countries an atmosphere of uneasiness, which has at times reached an acute stage, and in Italy, the intransigence of some circus found justification, above all, in the weakness of the governments, 
inasmuch as they had ground for fearing that all our rights would be trodden underfoot the moment we no longer had tangible securities in our hands. By the agreements which are now handed to us, the government of Belgrade has recognized the necessity of determining the regime which will have to regulate the reciprocal relations of the new boundaries before passing to the definite execution of the territorial clauses. As for the substance of the agreements, it is my conviction that the greater or less efficacy will depend upon the spirit in which they are carried out, because never, perhaps, it had been so true, as in this case, that the most perfect pacts become empty formulas if a doubtful or hostile spirit is brought to the execution. I observe, in conclusion, that the uncertainty which has been manifested in the foreign policy of Italy as regards the Treaty of Rapallo has created a situation unfavorable to her, often preventing her from taking a decided attitude, which would have been in her interest in most essential questions of a general nature, and making her appear in a light contradictory to her position as a great power. My intense, though brief, experience of government has shown me that it is not possible to carry out a strong foreign policy without having decisive and clearly defined attitudes as regards the other states. Italy must get away from this weak situation, must regain her full liberty and efficiency of action also in this sphere. We shall, therefore, carry out the treaty resolutely and loyally, exacting its scrupulous observance. We shall watch over this as is our right and duty, and we wait for time to pass definite judgment upon the soundness and the fate of today's conventions. With this understanding, I ask you, honorable members, to approve of the following project of law. Full and entire execution is given to the agreements and conventions signed at Rome on 23rd October 1921 between the Kingdom of Italy and the Kingdom of the Serbs, the Croats and the Slovenes for the execution of the Treaty of Raballo of 12 November 1920. End of section 44. Section 45 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. Section 45. 10th February 1923. The Agreements of Santa Margarita, Italy and Yugoslavia. Chamber of Deputies. Sitting of 10th February 1923. The Prime Minister. Honourable Members, with the approval of the Agreements of Santa Margarita, there came to an end what might be called the Foreign Policy Week of the Italian Government a week that might also be called Pacific, since it began with the ratification of the Convention of Washington, which represents a pause in the great naval armament, and ends with the approval of the agreements of Santa Margarita, which are the consequence of the Treaty of Rapallo, already ratified and partly carried out. In closing this week of the life of Parliament, I realise that the Chamber has done good work, and that it has during this session undoubtedly raised, in some ways, its prestige in the country. Comments. 
the questions with which the Chamber has dealt are large. They are not concerned with treaties and bills of minor importance, as some have said. I refused to embark, as was attempted on the left, upon the usual discussions of a general character which do not conclude anything. While I am on this bench, the Chamber will not be changed into an electoral meeting. No discussion. There is nothing to discuss as regards home policy. That which happens, happens because it is my direct and clear desire, and in accordance with my precise orders, and for which I naturally assume full personal responsibility. Comments. It is useless, therefore, to go to the police officials, because the orders are mine. It does not affect me to know of the existence of a plot, in the sense usually attributed to that word. This will be settled by competent authorities, but there are those who thought that they would fight with impunity against the state and fascismo. By now they must be disillusioned, and they'll be more so in the future. The difference between the liberal and fascist estates consists precisely in this, that the fascist estate does not defend itself only, but attacks, and those who intend to slander it abroad and to undermine its authority at home must be warned that their manoeuvres bring with them unforeseen consequences. The enemies of the fascisti must not be surprised if I treat them severely as enemies. As regards the speech of Filippo Tarati, my old fighting scent did not deceive me when a few days ago I refused the advances which came to me from that quarter through Gregorio Norfri, who, having been in Russia, felt the overpowering necessity of becoming anti-Bolshevist. Strayed sheep do not enter my fold. I am still faithful to my old tactics. I do not seek anybody. I do not refuse anybody. I put faith above all in my own forces. This is why, lately, after the meeting of the Great Fascista Council, I desire that there should be a closer union with those parties with which, fighting on national ground, friendly relations can be established for common work. But all this, let it be said at once, has not been done for parliamentary purposes, but for the sake of cohesion, unity, and the pacification of the country. I agree wholly with that which the Honourable Cavazzoni said yesterday with regard to the eight-hour day. I declared before a meeting of 800 printers that the eight-hour day represents an inviolable conquest on the part of the working classes. Today there are those who dream of setting on foot a long discussion because opposing ideas are attributed to this and that member of the cabinet. I give definite notice that the government, in one of its forthcoming meetings, will decide once and for all the question of the eight-hour day. This having been said, and I hope that everybody will understand also the sense of all I have not said, I pass on to the subject of foreign policy. A circumspect policy of activity. In the meantime, I cannot accept the statement of the Honourable Lucci, who makes out that I am original. In the first place, he must give me time. In the second, there is no originality in foreign affairs, and I refuse to be original, if this originality would result in the slightest damage to my country. Applause. And I cannot accept, either, his too idealistic point of view. I see the world as it really is. That is to say, a world of unbounded egoism. If the world was Arcadia, it would be pleasant to amuse oneself with nips and shepherds, but I do not see anything of all this. And even when the more or less respectable standards of great principles are displayed, 
I see behind them interests which seek for a footing in the world. If all foreign policy were brought into the region of pure idealism, it would certainly not be Italy who would refuse to join in. But it is not so. Hence all that the Honourable Lucci says belongs to the music of the most distant spheres. Laughter When I first took up my position on this bench, there was a moment of trepidation in certain sectors of international politics. It was thought that the advent to power of fascismo would mean, at the very least, war with Yugoslavia. After a few months, international opinion is fully reassured. The foreign policy of fascismo cannot be, especially in these historic times, other than extremely circumspect, though at the same time very active. The nation, having issued from the splendid and blood-stained travail of the war, is now fully intent on the work of building up its political, economic, financial and moral life. To compel it to make an effort which was not absolutely necessary would be to follow an anti-national and suicidal policy. At London, as at Lucerne, Italian foreign policy has pursued this direction. At Lucerne, above all, the work of the Italian delegation has been highly appreciated. If peace was not concluded there, it was not the fault in any way of, of Italy. On the other hand, it is not good to speak too pessimistically of the development of affairs in the eastern Mediterranean. It must not be thought that a certain harmless showing of teeth, sometimes the result of reciprocal restlessness, means the beginning of a war. I think that if Greece is prudent, and that the Entente remains firmly united, as in the case of their ships in the port of Smyrna, that Turkey too, since she has realised a large part of the programme laid down at Angora, will become reasonable. There is no reason, therefore, to fear military complications in Europe. Still, Italy will keep a careful lookout that the disturbances resulting upon the events in the rural district shall not have serious consequences among the countries of the Danube Basin. The situation on the rural stationery, I declare once again that Italy could not have followed a different line of policy. The time for fine gestures is past, as they are useless. The attitude which was advocated by certain elements on the left would have been equally useless. We could not have prevented the French from marching on the Ruhr, and we might have encouraged the German resistance. Also, the other plan of our mediation could not have been carried out because no mediation of any kind is possible if it is not asked for and welcomed. Applause. Besides, England has limited herself to non-technical participation in the operations on the Ruhr, but has not pushed her difference of opinion with France to the point of withdrawing her troops from the Rhine. It is opportune to add that France has not asked us, up to now, for formal and concrete assistance. Should this happen, it is evident that Italy should reserve to herself the right of exposing all the complex system of the relations between the two countries. Loud applause. The last phase of the Adriatic drama. As to the agreements of Santa Margarita, of which the Chamber is asked to approve, they represent the last phase of our sad and lamentable Adriatic drama. I could here reply in detail. I could show the Honourable Chiesa, for example, how only yesterday, 9th February, I received a telegram from Belgrade to this effect. The Ministry of Yugoslavia communicates that orders have been sent to the authorities of Spalato that the premises of the school shall be evacuated and put at the disposal of the school itself, 
and that the house which adjoins the church of Santo Spirito shall be emptied and handed over. I could correct other inaccuracies, but it is not my business. It is not worth while to descend to the discussion of detail. I am always of the opinion that this convention must be carried out in order to test it. At the same time, I do not feel like defending, at too great a length, a treaty of which I did not approve when it was concluded, and which I still hold to be, as regards a great many of its clauses, absurd and harmful to Italian interests. But matters today stand thus. Either the treaty must be definitely enforced or denounced. Since in present conditions it cannot be denounced, for that would mean the reopening of all difficulties, there remains nothing but its loyal and scrupulous application on our part, as loyal and scrupulous as the application on the part of Belgrade will have to be. Applause To wait indefinitely for events which may occur is the worst of systems at this moment. It is necessary to put an end to a situation which has become unbearable, and which gave us all the disadvantages without assuring us of what might be the advantages of clearly defined relations. Moreover, it is difficult to understand why the Treaty of Rapallo, of all the treaties which have been made from the beginning of history, should be the only one irreparable and perpetual. No treaty has ever withstood new conditions of affairs developed by the progress of time. The essential thing, to my mind, is to place ourselves in such a position that an eventual revision will enable us to vindicate our eternal rights with dignity and power. Applause. The Government in Favour of Fiume and Zara By the application of the agreements of Santa Margarita, the fascist government gives a solemn proof of its probity, its spirit of decision, and of absolute loyalty. Belgrade must do the same. Yugoslavia must take into account the intrinsic value of this act, and follow, where the Italians who remain in Dalmatia are concerned, a policy of freedom and judicious action. As a policy which would tend to suppress the Italian element in Dalmatia would not be tolerated by the fascist government. Applause. By the ratification of these agreements, the government offers Yugoslavia the opportunity of furthering the economic relations between the two countries. The government, which has already done all it can within the limits of its possibilities for Fiume and Zara, will continue to work with the utmost energy and diligence for these two cities. The evacuation of Susak having been carried out, and of Susak only, because the Delta and Porto Barra will still be occupied by our troops until Fiume has become juridically a perfect state, Italy will continue to interest herself in the fate of Fiume, so that she may be restored in a short time to her ancient splendour. As for Zara, her destiny is serious and difficult, and I, for one, understand the tragedy of that city and the suffering of all the Italians scattered in Dalmatia up as far as Kataro. But Zara, the sentinel of Dalmatia, is ready to bear, with the spirit of absolute national discipline, the completion of the last act of the Adriatic drama. The government will meet its needs immediately, because Zara must live. Because Zara beyond the Adriatic represents one of the most vital portions of the Italian people. And the people of Zara, in Dalmatia, may be sure that the government will watch over their fate with the most loving care. These are not merely words spoken to help them through this difficult time. Deeds will follow them. As for public, national opinion... It is unanimous in feeling that these agreements had to be applied in order that Italy might be free in the ever-closer international competition, 
free to carry out a policy of defence of her interests, and free to influence with increasing activity the course of events. I think that the best part of the Italian people agree in this line of home and foreign policy. Applause. End of section 45. Section 46 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. Section 46. 16th February 1923. Questions of foreign policy before the Senate. The Ruhr, Fiume, Zara and Dalmatia. Sitting of the Senate. 16th February 1923. The Prime Minister. Honourable Senators, after having written the prefaces and the introductions to the bills, and after the speech made in the other branch of Parliament, I do not think that there remains much to say. The very rapidity of the discussion itself bears witness to the fact that all these treaties and agreements are already, in a certain sense, superseded. By this I do not wish to deny their importance, but it is a question of treaties and conventions of some time back, and life today moves at a very great rate. I do not disguise the fact that in continuing the eternal theory of conferences, people have reason to show a certain scepticism about the likelihood of results. Laughter. Why Italy intervenes. Senator Crespi tried to carry the discussion onto general ground, the burning ground of debts and reparations. He demands new packs, but there are none. Perhaps there cannot be any. With reference to a recent appeal for Italy's intervention in this matter, if responsible members of governments, and especially those engaged or interested in the conflict, turn to Italy, the only nation in the world which at this moment is following a policy of peace. Applause. I should not hesitate one moment in answering the appeal. There is a new factor, Senator Crispy, which it would be a good thing to take into consideration, though it is one which tends to stifle rather than arouse enthusiasm. It is that England and the United States have come to an agreement. England has undertaken to pay her debts to America. It is no good, therefore, for us to entertain too many illusions about the likelihood of a cancellation of our debts. It would be perfectly just, I think, from the strictly moral point of view, but the criteria and principles of absolute morality do not as yet guide the relations of the peoples. Approval. It was said in a foreign parliament that Italy had attempted to mediate between France and Germany. No such attempt was ever made. My duty was to make investigations in the European capitals, and I have done so. But having gathered that there was no possibility of proceeding in that direction, I drew back, as to continue would have been a great mistake. I think, however, that the crisis has reached its culminating point. It is a question now of knowing whether the Entente still exists, and still will exist. Comments I do not think that I shall be revealing secrets if I say here what meets the eye of anyone who reads the daily news in the papers. Not a single event has occurred, not a single question arisen, without the problem of the unity of action of the Entente having been brought forward. Of necessity in this political situation, there can be no improvised action and still less originality. All foreign policies, not excluding that of Russia, which is simply terrifying in form and method, are of a cautious and circumspect nature at this moment. There is no reason why Italy should follow a different course. 
When it is a question of the interests of our nation and of 40 million inhabitants who have the right to live, it is necessary to be careful about improvisations and it is necessary to take into account that, besides our wishes, there are also the wishes of others. If we had coal fields, if we had in some way solved the problem of raw materials, if we could dispose of large reserves of gold in order to keep up the value of our money, we could follow a given policy, even one of generosity towards Germany. But we cannot afford the luxury of prodigality and generosity when we have to toil to carry on life, when we have to summon all our energies to avoid falling into the abyss. And so you will agree with me, honourable members, that Italy could not keep aloof from that which is taking place on the Ruhr, could not deprive herself of participation in an economical and technical capacity. It is always better, in my opinion, to be present, because sometimes complicated problems find unexpected solutions. It was not possible to run the risk capriciously of not being present, in the event, not at all improbable, of an economic agreement as regards iron and coal between Germany and France. Applause. Zara and Dalmatia. Coming to the agreements of Santa Margarita, I understand perfectly the grief and anguish expressed in the words of Senator Tomasia and Tiveroni. Undoubtedly sentiment is a great spiritual force, both in the lives of individuals and of peoples, but it cannot be the one dominating influence of foreign policy. It is necessary to have the courage to say that Italy cannot remain forever penned up in one sea, even if it is the Adriatic. Beyond the Adriatic there is the Mediterranean and other seas which can interest us. The Treaty of Rapallo was, in my opinion, a lamentable transaction which was the result of a difficult internal situation and of a foreign policy which was not marked by its excessive autonomy. And here allow me to repeat that a strong and dignified foreign policy cannot be carried out if the nation does not present a daily example of iron discipline. Approval I do not think that these agreements of Santa Margarita sign the death warrant of Zara and Dalmatia. Would the last concessions we have saved the use of the Italian language for our brothers there? Now I think it was Gioberti who said that where the language is spoken there is the nation. For this reason, if these brothers of ours can speak, write, and learn in their mother tongue, I think that already one of the foundations of their Italian nationality is saved. For a decade the Italians of Zara and Dalmatia have resisted the furious attempts at denationalisation made by the Habsburg monarchy. In those days, Italy could not give active assistance to those brothers. Now you see that she has another realisation of herself. Those brothers of ours, who might have felt themselves forgotten if the agreements of Santa Margarita were applied by another nation, cannot feel the same when the definite and necessary application of the Treaty of Rapallo is carried out by the government over which I had the honour of presiding, and in which the members are those who won the victory. Applause. We firmly believe that the strict and scrupulous application of the agreements of Santa Margarita on our part, as well as on the part of Yugoslavia, will save the Italian character of Zara and Dalmatia. There is no need for me to repeat that treaties are transactions, and are like the steps of an equilibrist. No treaty is eternal and perpetual. All that is happening today under our eyes gives us clear warning. The Question of Fium we shall then carry out these agreements immediately and loyally. It must not be thought that the third zone is a kind of vast continent, and that in it we have immense forces. 
It is a question of the territory around Zara and a group of islands. All told, we have only 120 policemen, 18 custom house guards, and 20 soldiers. At Susak we have a battalion of infantry. It will be a case of turning them back to the line of Ineo, because until it is known what is to become of Fiume, Porto Barros, and the Delta, they will remain under the control of Italian troops. Applause. What is this arbitration commission? It represents an attempt to bring about the existence of that more or less vital creature, first conceived at Rapallo, known as the independent state of Fiume. Laughter. One thing is certain, at any rate, and that is that there are three Italians in the commission. And another thing is certain, and that is that it is not absolutely necessary for Fiume to become a new province of the realm. That there should actually be a prefect at Fiume is to me a secondary matter. The important thing is that Fiume shall keep her spirit sound and intact, that she shall remain Italian, and that such means shall be found that shall make her a city which lives in itself and for itself, and not only through the largesse of the Italian state. Loud applause. The government which sometimes makes deeds precede words has already taken steps for the provision of Zara, economically, politically, and spiritually. The same has been done for Dalmatia. It is necessary to admit frankly that since the coming of the fascista government, the Yugoslavs have been less intransigent with regard to us. There is no doubt that the definite carrying out of the Treaty of Rapallo is the cause of great grief for the citizens of Fiume and Zara, of Dalmatia, and many in the Old Kingdom. Cries of, it is true. Mussolini. At other times there might perhaps have been difficulties, but the government over which I had the honour of presiding does not hesitate. It faces difficulties. I was almost going to say seeks them. I intend to regulate as soon as possible all that more or less successful heritage of foreign policy left me by my predecessors. It is no good being alarmed by what happens. I have what I dare to call a Roman conception of history and life. Things must never be thought to be irreparable. Rome did not believe in the irreparable, even after the Battle of Cannes, when she lost the flower of her generation. On the contrary, you will remember that the Senate went out to meet Terentius Varro, who, having wished to undertake the battle against the advice of Paulus Aemilius, was certainly one of those responsible for the defeat. Rome fell and rose up again. She marched slowly, but she marched. She had a goal to reach, and she intended to reach it. Italy, our Italy, the Italy which we carry in our hearts, and which is our pride, must be like this. The Italy which accepts her destiny, when it is imposed by hard necessity, but only while she prepares her spirit and her forces to overcome it some day. Loud and prolonged applause. Many senators advanced to congratulate the Prime Minister. Silence being once more established, Mussolini continues. I propose that the Senate, having concluded the discussion suspended yesterday evening, should be adjourned. I do not know for how long. The government must be left free to work and to prepare work for the Chamber and the Senate. Meanwhile, I feel the necessity of thanking the President who has directed the proceedings with that tact and high wisdom for which he is known. I am glad that the Senate, in approving of these political and commercial treaties, which are two aspects of the same policy, has thus brought to a conclusion a part of our foreign policy. I beg the President to accept the expression of my profound admiration. 
Titoni, President of the Senate, replies reciprocating the words of the Prime Minister and praising his spirit and his patriotic faith. He pays tribute to the way in which the Honourable Mussolini has assumed, with a firm hand, the direction of public interests. End of section 46 Section 47 of Mussolini is revealed in his political speeches. Section 47 2nd March 1923 Review of European politics and their relation with Italy Speech delivered before the Cabinet, 2nd March 1923 The Prime Minister Honourable colleagues, the situation on the Ruhr has remained stationary during these last weeks. While the two disputants seem to settle themselves more rigidly in their respective positions of passive resistance on the part of Germany, and active pressure on the part of Belgium and France, England has not changed her attitude of benign disapproval, and Italy has neither increased nor reduced the number of technical experts representing her on the Ruhr. So far there has not arisen the new factor which would lead, in one sense or the other, to the solution of the crisis. This new factor could consist either in a direct proposal made by one disputant to the other, or in a request for mediation, or in the modification, on a political basis, of the aims which France says she has in view, aims of an economic nature, which so far have not gone beyond the limit of the payment of reparations, or else an increase of the opposition of England, which would lead to the withdrawal of her troops from the Rhine. It seems, however, clear, notwithstanding the solicitations of an element of the advanced democracy, that England maintains her attitude of circumspect waiting, without impatience or precipitation. The war which at the present moment has for its theatre the basin of the Ruhr is one of attrition, and it may yet last for some time, in spite of the general expectation all over Europe of a rapid conclusion. As I have already said both in the Senate and the Chamber, Italy will not refuse her assistance in any attempt that may be made to render normal the situation in Central Europe as soon as possible, and of this she has given tangible proof in the help afforded, before any other country, to Austria. The solidarity which Italy was bound to show towards France upon the common ground of reparations has given rise to projects of greater importance, which might have been interpreted in certain circles as having been directed against other powers, or to the exclusion of some one of them. An official declaration on the part of the government has established the truth of the matter. The campaign in certain papers has not been approved of and still less authorised. That it is very opportune that friendly and cordial relations should exist between Italy and France is the sincere conviction of my government. It is very much to be desired that the economic relations between these two neighbouring countries shall be intensified and strengthened, and the government has worked in this direction in concluding the recent commercial agreement. But this has nothing to do with a real treaty of alliance, as has been suggested in certain sections of public opinion. The fascist government intends on the whole to follow a line of foreign policy as far as possible autonomous, and it could never adhere to alliances which did not protect the interests of Italy in the highest degree, and which did not constitute a solid guarantee of peace and prosperity for Italy in particular, and Europe in general. Fascista Italy cannot and will not adhere to a system of alliances which does not take into account these fundamental premises. For her to pledge herself in any way definitely while the Entente is still in a state of crisis, and there are still many obscure points in the general situation in the world, would be unpardonable. Turkey and Peace 
No reliable news has hitherto reached us as to the intentions of the government at Angora concerning the acceptance or non-acceptance of the projected treaty presented by the Allies to the Turkish delegation at Lausanne. Information is contradictory because, whereas on the one hand it is said that, in spite of the moderating influence of Mustafa Kemal and Ismet Pasha, the Assembly of Angora has shown itself adverse to some of the conditions already accepted by the Turkish delegation at Lausanne, and it intends to rediscuss the projects of the treaty, article by article. On the other hand, especially from British quarters, it is continually said that the Turks seem favourably disposed towards the rapid conclusion of peace. Whatever may be the decision of the government at Angora, it must be remembered that, once the deliberations of the Assembly are at an end, the Turks will, by means of the Secretary-General of the Conference, who remains for the present at Lausanne, give a definite reply to the Allies concerning eventual requests and proposals. Between the governments at Rome, London and Paris, there is in consequence an active diplomatic correspondence, in progress with the object of establishing the common line of action to be adopted by the Allies in certain important questions such as that of capitulations and those concerning the economic clauses, as well as the course to be adopted in the eventual resumption of the work of the conference, if the Turkish proposals are such that as to furnish a serious basis for discussion. The British government is showing itself to be very rigid in this respect, and seems not to wish to allow discussion upon other than these three points. a. The formula of the Turco-Gresian reparations. b the formula of the judicial guarantees for foreigners, c. Economic clauses. As regards the first, it is a question of putting in the hands of an arbitration commission the reciprocal claims of the two countries, since the Turks do not even admit that the Greeks have any claims to present. For the second, it is a question of finding a formula which will provide more efficient guarantees for foreigners, where the searching of private houses and arrests are concerned. And as regards the third, of resuming the discussion and negotiations upon all economic questions, and hand them over to another commission to be dealt with apart from the Treaty of Peace. The Italian government is fully convinced of the necessity of bringing about the conclusion of this peace in order that grave dangers, derived from the actual situation in the East, may be avoided, and in order that normal conditions, favourable to the free exercise of trade and industry, may be re-established. Although we are resolute in demanding from Turkey the acceptance of the really moderate conditions proposed by the Allies, we do not think, however, that every and any request, not connected with the three points mentioned above, made by Turkey, should be excluded a priori, but rather that the possibility of examination without preconception should always be considered where some well-defined and limited proposal is concerned. As to procedure, the British government would be inclined towards the renewal of the discussion at Constantinople, while the Italian government, realising the dangers which would menace the success of the negotiations in the surroundings of the Turkish capital, would prefer that it should take place at Lausanne, with a limited gathering of technical delegates. In any case, it will not be possible to make a definite decision about this before knowing the answer of the Turkish government, which is to be decided by the vote of the Grand Assembly. Mamel and the Polish Frontier The question of Mamel has been solved in theory, and it is not probable that in practice overpowering obstacles will be met with, since in the solution the rights of both the Lithuanians and the Poles have been taken into account.
This incident has afforded an opportunity of examining generally the still uncertain position of Poland with regard to her boundaries. It seemed to the Italian government that such uncertainty was pregnant with dangers, and that it was of the utmost importance to arrive, as soon as possible, at the recognition of the frontier, the delimitation of which is reserved for the Allied powers by the Treaty of Versailles. Consequently, at the Conference of Ambassadors at Paris, the government proposed that such a delimitation should be proceeded with at once, a proposal which, not having appeared at first to meet with the approval of the other representatives, has recently been presented again by the French government, and to which we, for the sake of consistency, have adhered. As far as the boundaries between Lithuania and Poland are concerned, we should have preferred the League of Nations to have been called upon to pass an opinion, so that the largest number of states possible should be interested in guaranteeing the decision. Our allies, however, having drawn attention to the fact that the procedure of the League of Nations is of a length and tediousness which, at the present moment, it is better to avoid, we have also adhered on this point to the French proposal to hand the question over to the Conference of Ambassadors. We truly hope that Poland and Lithuania will accept the decisions which the Conference of Ambassadors thinks it just to make. And this is one of those typical cases in which Poland and Lithuania must take into account the inevitable necessity of sentiment yielding to reason. The Problems of the Adriatic, Fiume, Abazia, Zara The Italian delegation and part of that of Yugoslavia have already arrived at Abazia. At present work has not begun, but will begin as soon as possible. At our request, the government at Belgrade has replaced Admiral Preza by Senor Rybar as her representative. The accusations against Admiral Preza, as a participator in the legal proceedings which led to the condemnation and death of Nazaria Soro, are well known. The government at Belgrade showed itself to be appreciative of the eminently moral reasons for our objection and consented to the substitution, even at the cost of facing the criticism of the italophobe opposition, with a good will which seems an excellent omen for the future. Our delegation, too, to the Commission for the Evacuation of the Third Zone is already at Zara, and since the Yugoslav delegation has also arrived, work can begin at once. An incident which occurred the night before last, when abuse of Zara and Italy was shouted from a passing Yugoslav steamer within sight of that port, has already evoked spontaneous and immediate apologies from the Yugoslav consul to our prefect. But I have urged Belgrade to prevent such deplorable, although unimportant, incidents from occurring again. I must say that, hitherto, the Yugoslav government has shown itself to be animated on the whole by excellent feeling and loyally cooperates in seeking to smooth the way in this period of important and delicate negotiations which has just begun. As for the attitude of the national elements at Zara and Fiume, they remain inspired by a high sense of discipline and recognition of the necessity of subordinating private interests to the general welfare of the nation. The Conference of Sudban The work of the Conference of Sudban for the purpose of technical and administrative reorganisation has made sufficient progress. Both the states interested and the company have presented their proposals for amendments, in which they try, without interfering with the basis of the projects under discussion, to lessen the financial burden. The project of the agreement concerning through traffic, which contains regulations guaranteeing the regularity of the organisation of the railways, 
facilities for the customs and sanitary services, and the setting and order of the international stations, as well as regulations regarding the railway rates of the through trains, has already been discussed. The states have shown themselves to be of one opinion with regard to the intentions of the project, which tend to unite in a special convention all the different regulations which have issued from the treaties of peace and the projects of the convention concluded at Barcelona and Portoros. The project, moreover, is directed particularly towards reviving the powers of the Convention of Bern in respect of international traffic. The scheme of agreement for the technical and administrative reorganisation of the Subban admits the possibility of direct control on the part of the state, as well as on the part of the company. It aims also at the maintenance of that unity of commercial direction which, without offending the sovereignty of the states with regard to tariffs, will allow of international traffic and the direct dispatching of goods, and will take into account the special exigencies of trade, which require particular measures in which, not being prejudicial to the states, will be advantageous as regards to the economic relations between them. The work of the conference will probably last another week on account of the complicated and difficult character of the various financial, technical and administrative problems to be solved. End of section 47 Section 48 of Mussolini as Revealed in His Political Speeches The Italo-Yugoslav Conference for the Commercial Treaty Opening Address Delivered in Rome at the Palazzo Chigi on 6 March 1923 before the members of the conference. Gentlemen, I am particularly glad to open this meeting and welcome cordially the delegates of the Kingdom of the Serbs, the Croats, and the Slovenes. I attach great importance to this meeting and to its results, which I am confident will be excellent. You know that at Abasia, the Adriatic question is being settled, so that at the present time, the field may be cleared of those special problems which up to today have not permitted an understanding with Yugoslavia. Along with that of Abasia, this meeting convened with the object of linking together more closely commercial relations between the two countries, attains a great importance. Italian public opinion and the fascista government consider that, together with political relations, there must be close and profitable economic ties. I am certain that the Italian delegates will make every effort to arrive at this agreement, and I do not doubt that the Yugoslav delegation will do the same. This will be in the common interest of the two countries. Applause. End of section 48. Section 49 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. History tells us that strict finance has brought nations to security. Speech delivered at the Ministry of Finance on 7th of March, 1923, where Mussolini officially handed over to the minister, Honorable Di Stefani, the budgets of home and foreign affairs be revised in accordance with a decision of the Council of Ministers. Honorable Ministers, colleagues, gentlemen, it might be asked, why such fuss? Why so many soldiers for a ceremony which could have been described as purely administrative, such as the consignment of my two budgets to the Finance Minister? We must answer this question thus, for various motives, some more plausible than others. 
The solemnity which accompanies this ceremony serves to demonstrate the immense importance the government attaches to a rapid restoration of financial normality. We have formerly promised to make a start towards balancing the state budget, and with this promise, we wish to keep faith at whatever cost. We must be convinced that if the whole falls, the part falls too, and that if the economic life of the nation falls in ruin, all that is in the nation institutions, men, classes, is destined to suffer the same fate. And why these soldiers? To show that the government has strength. I declare that, if possible, I want to govern with the consent of the majority of the people, but whilst waiting for this consent to be formed, to be nourished, to be strengthened, I collect the maximum available force. Because it may happen, by chance, that force may aid in rediscovering consent, and, at any rate, should consent be lacking, force still remains. In all the measures, even the most drastic, the government takes, we shall put before the people this dilemma. Either accept them from a high spirit of patriotism, or submit to them. This is how I conceive the state, and how I understand the art of governing the nation. I am glad to find myself before you, continued the president, turning to the officials of the Ministry of Finance present at the ceremony, because the minister has spoken very favorably to me of the high officials of the Ministry of Finance. He told me that some of you often work up to 16 hours a day. Well done! Those are long hours, but it is a splendid example. But if they were not sufficient it would be necessary to work even twenty hours. Only thus, gentlemen, shall we rise up out of the sea of our present difficulties and reach the shore. We must inculcate in our spirit a sense of absolute discipline. We must consider that the money of the treasury is sacred above everything else. It does not rain down from heaven, nor can it even be made with a turn of the printing press, which, if I could, I would like to smash to pieces. It is made out of the sweat, it might be said, of the blood of the Italian people, who work today, but who will work more tomorrow. Every lira, every soldo, every centesimo of this money must be considered sacred and should not be spent unless reasons of strict and proved necessity demand it. The history of peoples tells us that strict finance has brought nations to security. I feel that each one of you believes in this truth, which is fully proved by history. With this conviction, I bid you farewell. Applause. End of section 49. Section 50 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. It is not the economic system of Europe alone that we have to restore to its full efficiency. Speech delivered at the Palazzo dell'Espiazione in Rome on 18th of March, 1923, before the International Congress of the Chambers of Commerce. Gentlemen, the government over which I have the honor to preside and which I represent is glad to welcome you to Rome and offers you a deferential and cordial greeting which I extend also to the foreign representatives, 
who have wished to honor us by their presence. The fact that your important Congress is held in the capital of Italy, only five months after the events which gave the control of public affairs to the youthful forces of war and of victory, is the best declaration to the world that the Italian nation is rapidly returning to the full normality of her political and economical life. In a meeting like this, I shall not linger on their former, but shall briefly dwell on the latter subject. The economic policy of the new Italian government is simple. I consider that the state should renounce its industrial functions, especially of a monopolistic nature, for which it is inadequate. I consider that a government which means to relieve rapidly peoples from after-war crises should allow free play to private enterprise, should renounce any meddling or restrictive legislation, which may please the socialist demagogues, but proves in the end, as experience shows, absolutely ruinous. It is, therefore, time to remove from the shoulders of the producing forces of every nation the last remains of that machinery which was called the trappings of war, and to examine economic problems, no longer with a state of mind veiled by the influence of particular interests, as they had to be examined during the war. I do not believe that the aggregate of forces, which, in industry, in agriculture, in commerce, in banking, in transportation, may be called by the world name of capitalism, is near its downfall as certain doctrinarians belonging to the social extremists have claimed. One of the great historical experiences of which we have been witnesses proves that all the systems of associated economics which do away with private initiative and individual effort fail more or less pitifully in a short time. But free initiative does not exclude an agreement between groups which will be realized all the easier when there is a loyal protection of each separate interest. Your Chamber of Commerce follows exactly this program of inquiry, and of stabilization, of coordinating and conciliating the various interests. You are here in Rome to discuss the best means to revive the great currents of trade, which, before the war, had increased general wealth and brought all people to a high standard of living. These are weighty and delicate problems which often cause discussions of a political and moral nature. To solve them, we must be guided by the conviction that it is not the economic system of Europe alone that we have to restore to its full efficiency, but that there are also countries and continents which may offer a field for a larger economic activity in the near future. It is not without significance that the powerful Republic of the United States has sent such a large number of her representatives to Rome. It means that, if official political America still keeps an attitude of reserve, economic America feels that she cannot remain indifferent to what may or may not be done in Europe. There is no doubt that governments, beginning with mine, 
will examine with the utmost care and give due weight to the decisions which are arrived at by this Congress. Loud cheers. End of section 50. Section 51 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. 29 March 1923. Only those who profited by the war grumbled and still grumble, cursed and still curse at the war. Speech delivered on 29 March 1923 in Milan at Villa Mirabello before blind ex-soldiers. My dear comrades, when a little time ago one of your officers told me that you never grumbled at the war, even when Italy seemed overwhelmed, I was not surprised because only those who profited by the war grumbled and still grumble, cursed and still curse at the war. Those who have performed their duty do not grumble, do not curse, but accept their sacrifice with Roman simplicity and austerity. When I am amongst the maimed, I live again the greatest days of all war, and I declare to you that a government which did not bear you in mind would be unworthy, and would only be worthy of being overthrown by the fury of the people. But the government which I represent is entirely formed of men who have fought from the Stelvio to the Sea of Trieste, and such men cannot ignore the sacrifices accomplished. I express to you here this morning all my brotherly sympathy and admiration as an ex-soldier, as a man, as an Italian, and I embrace you all, and by this act I intend to honor and exalt all those who contributed to the greatness of the mother country by the deeds accomplished and by the shedding of their blood. Applause. End of section 51. Section 52 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. 30 March, 1923. Patriotism is not formed by mere words. Speech delivered at Arosio near Milan on 30th March, 1923, before ex-soldiers suffering from shell shock. Fellow soldiers, I did well to accept your courteous invitation, in the first place, as it always gives me great pleasure to offer to my comrades of the trenches the proof of my fraternal sympathy as a soldier, as a man, as an Italian, and as head of the government. As I said yesterday to the blind ex-soldiers at Villa Mirabello, so I say to you, the government intends to protect you, intends to satisfy your requests to defend your material and moral rights. Your invitation has given me the opportunity to see this splendid work, which represents the results and the harmonious synthesis of faith in your undertakings and of noble love for our country. Everything that is done for the maimed and for ex-soldiers is a small thing in face of the sacrifice of so many Italians who gave their life on the battlefields or who shed their blood. What is done here is not only a manifestation of piety, it is an expression of national solidarity and of conscientious patriotism. Because patriotism is not formed by mere words, it is formed by deeds, by example, by showing oneself worthy before one's own conscience of the quality of being Italian. The government intends to exalt all the forces of the country, all the moral forces arising from our victory. It means daily and disinterestedly to defend all those who by their deeds and their blood have contributed to this glorious victory. Applause. End of section 52.
Section 53 of Mussolini is revealed in his political speeches. Section 53. 7th April 1923. Questions of foreign policy before the cabinet. Speech delivered before the cabinet on 7th April 1923. The Abasia Conference. Colleagues, the commission appointed according to the agreements of Santa Margarita, which met, as is known, on 1st March, started its work by the arrangement for the evacuation of Susac, which took place on the following day. It is opportune here to note that the Italian delegation wished to express to the world and to the Italian troops its gratitude for the courteous and chivalrous behaviour during the whole occupation of Susac. The Commission decided, at that time, a provisional settlement for communication and traffic between Fiume and Susac, which was made effective for two months, in view of the eventuality of the prorogation of the sittings of the Commission. The frontier traffic between Castua and the adjacent territories was also organised. With reference to the military operations, the Serbo-Croatian Slovak delegation has at once recorded an objection on the grounds that with the evacuation of Susac, it did not consider that that stipulated by the agreements of Santa Margarita had been carried out, seeing that the Delta and Porto Sauro remained occupied by Italian troops. Against this assertion, the Italian delegation replied that Italy had carried out to the letter with the provisions of the agreements of Santa Margarita, which refer purely and simply to the evacuation of Susac. Apart from this objection, the Commission has continued its work and the Italian delegation has put forward a project for a consortium in the Port of Fiume between the three interested states. Such a project, in a general way, attributes to Fiume the character of an international port, leaving the possibility of the enjoyment of special privileges and guarantees to each of the contracting states for a freer development of the traffic which affects them. With regard to such a project, the Serbo-Croatian-Slovak delegation has put forward its objections, presenting on its own account a draft of a project according to which the Soro Basin and the Delta would be excluded from the port of Fiume and assigned exclusively to Yugoslavia. The Italian delegation has formally declared that it could not accede to any pact whatsoever, which destroying the unity of the port of Fiume would irremediably damage the future of the new state, and, in answer to the objections raised by the Serbo-Croatian-Slovak delegation to the Italian project, our delegation has presented another plan, in which full consideration was given to the said exceptions. But, in the course of the following discussion, the points of view of the two delegations could not be reconciled. The sittings were suspended on 24th March to be resumed shortly. The New Lausanne Conference Following the counter-proposals put forward by the government of Angora, the British government has convened in London an inter-allied meeting in order to examine what modifications to the drafting and the substance of the peace treaty presented to the Turks on the 30th of last January may be possible. The Allied representatives at this meeting have decided to invite the Turks to resume as soon as possible at Lausanne the discussion with the Allied experts and have at the same time come to an agreement as to the line of conduct to follow in such a discussion. In the text of the reply sent to the government of Angora, which has been published, the Allies have deemed it opportune to insert some remarks and objections on certain points of special importance, as for example that regarding the removal of the economic clauses 
asked by the Turks, to which the Allies cannot accede. That concerning some part of the judiciary declarations, and the Turkish demands relative to substantial modifications of the territorial clauses already agreed upon, such as that of Castel Rosso, whose restoration to Turkey could not be countenanced. It is to be hoped that the goodwill that both parties have the intention of displaying in the imminent negotiations of Lausanne may bring about speedily the conclusion of peace in the East, which corresponds with the warmest wish and interest of the Italian government. Italo-Polish Relations Mr. Skrzynski came to Milan to express to me the gratitude of Poland for the friendly attitude of Italy in the determination of the Polish frontier, which took place recently. Expressing a personal view, I mentioned to him the advisability of a larger extension of autonomy to the population of eastern Galicia. I profited by the occasion to examine with the Minister for Foreign Affairs some concrete points which, with regard to oil and coal, concern more closely our commerce. I recognise with satisfaction the friendly disposition which animates the Polish government, and I was struck with the impression that, whenever important Italian enterprises should wish to develop their activity in Poland, they would find there the best of welcomes. The representatives of some Italian firms of standing, moreover, are now already in negotiation at Warsaw, and the results, I hope, will in a short time confirm the favourable attitude of the Polish Foreign Minister. The Visit of the Austrian Chancellor Siepel In the conversations I had at Milan with the Austrian Chancellor, both parties expressed the reciprocal desire and interest to improve further relations between the two countries. The Chancellor has warmly thanked the Italian government for the helpful action on behalf of Austria, and has asked for our support for the satisfactory solution of all problems which might contribute to the economic reconstruction of the Republic. I gave favourable assurances and, consequently, have accordingly hastened the negotiations already begun for a commercial agreement, and I have had examined numerous questions which have been dragging on unsolved for some time. It is to be hoped that, the last difficulties having been removed, the commercial treaty may be signed within a few days. The clauses of the Porto Rose conventions, signed and not ratified by the contracting parties, will be included in it. The Chancellor has asked that the small Austrian properties in Italy and the historical Austrian Institute in Rome should be restored to Austria, as was done for Germany. While I declare myself favourable to his requests, I have, for my part, reminded him of the situation of Italian property in Austria, and have obtained from the Chancellor satisfactory assurances concerning this and other subjects. With reference to the conventions signed at the Conference of Rome, some of which have notable importance for Italy, the Chancellor has promised to proceed to their ratification without further delay. The Commercial Relations with Austria the negotiations with Austria are being conducted with a spirit of the greatest goodwill on both sides. In order to arrive in a short space of time at an agreement which should establish regular and profitable relations between the two countries, and also after the first period, during which the economic relations between the two states are regulated by the Treaty of Saint-Germain. If some difficulty still remains, this is due in the first place to the fact that it is not the case of negotiating pacts which, with regard to their application and their consequences, 
could remain restricted to the exchanges between the two neighbouring states, but are destined to have a repercussion also on our relations with the other states, which, for their imports into Italy, enjoy the most favoured nation clause. This fact, independently of the specially favourable conditions by which certain important industries, competing with ours, are working in Austria, compels us to be very cautious in adhering to the many Austrian requests, and all the more that, for financial and other reasons, Austria is herself not in a position to meet our demands to the extent which is essential to us. The two delegations have, however, already arrived at an agreement on most of the questions which have been the subject of reciprocal demands, and now certain controversies remain to be solved which, although they offer the greatest interest for both sides, it is to be hoped may be solved with satisfaction to all. Special attention has been paid by the two delegations to the study of the questions relative to the traffic through the port of Trieste, and the regulation of the frontier traffic for the protection of the interests of the populations of the zone near the frontier of the two states. On this subject, agreement may be said to be complete. The Commercial Treaty with Yugoslavia The negotiations with Yugoslavia which should lead to the regulation of all the economic and financial questions still pending between the two states, have been conducted so far on the Treaty of Commerce, which, except for the part concerning the Italian proposals on the tariffs, may be said to be already agreed upon by the two delegations. With reference to the other subjects under examination, of which only a small part has been possible to discuss at the same time as the negotiations for the commercial treaty, the Yugoslav delegation is now awaiting further instructions from Belgrade. Besides the commercial negotiations I have mentioned, there are others proceeding for a commercial treaty with Spain. Negotiations will shortly be opened for commercial agreements with Siam, Finland, Estonia, Lithuania, Latonia and Albania. After a short discussion, in which several ministers participated, the cabinet approved the declarations of the Prime Minister. End of section 53. Section 54 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. Mine is not the government which deceives the people. Speech delivered at the Palazzo Municipale on 2nd June 1923 to the contadini of Rovigo. Fascisti. How shall I find adequate words to thank you for this magnificent welcome? A few moments ago, your major gave voice to the greeting of the city and the province. Today, I have passed through your fertile lands, furrowed by rivers, exploited by your tenacious work. All Italy must be grateful to this industrious people, who, too, having realized the beautiful and supreme interests of the nation, has now all the more the right to be treated with greater friendship and consideration. I know that I am speaking to an assembly where workers are certainly in enormous majority. Well, I say to them with calm words and with a still calmer conscience that the government which I have the honor to represent is not, cannot and will never be against the working classes. Loud applause. Six months of government are still too few for a program to be carried through, but, to my mind, they are sufficient to give an idea of its directives, 
which today are precise and sound. Mine is not the government which deceives the people. Applause. We cannot, we shall not, make promises if we are not mathematically sure of being able to fulfill them. The people have been too long deceived and mystified for the men of our generation to continue this low trade. We have traced a furrow, very clear-cut and deep, between that which was the Italy of yesterday and that which is the Italy of today. In the latter, all classes must have a sphere of action for the fruitful cooperation. The struggle between classes may be an episode in the life of a people. It cannot be the daily system, as it would mean the destruction of wealth and therefore universal poverty. The cooperation, citizens, between him who labors and him who employs labor, between him who works with his hands and him who works with his brains, all these elements of production have their inevitable and necessary grades and constitutions. Through this program you will attain a state of well-being and the nation prosperity and greatness. If I were not sure of my words, I would not utter them before you on such a solemn and memorable occasion. Applause. At this point of the speech, an aeroplane piloted by Ferrarin was executing some daring evolutions just above the Palazzo Municipale, from where Mussolini was speaking. The Prime Minister stopped for a few seconds, following Ferrarin's evolutions, then went on. Fascisti, the other day I was passing in one of those aeroplanes over your town. That flight was profoundly significant as it was meant to show that six months of tenor of office have not yet nailed me down into my presidential easy chair, and that I, as you, as all of you, am still ready to dare, to fight, if necessary, to die, so that the fruits of the great fascista revolution may not be lost. Long live fascismo, long live Italy. Loud applause. End of section 54. Section 55 of Mussolini as Revealed in His Political Speeches. 2nd June 1923. In times past, as in time present, woman had always a preponderant influence in shaping the destinies of humanity. Speech delivered at Padua at the first Women's Fascista Congress on 2nd of June 1923. Ladies, if I am not mistaken, this which is inaugurated here today is the first woman's fascista congress of the three Venices. The title and the field covered by this first congress of yours are full of profound significance. Fifty years ago, one could not speak of the three Venices. Venice herself, after the magnificent years of heroism of 1848 and 1849, was still held by the shackles of foreign slavery. In 1866, we liberated Venice, one of the Venices. Fifty years afterwards, we liberated the other two, that which has as its boundary the devoted and impregnable Brenner, and the other which has as its boundary the not less devoted nor less impregnable Nevoso. 
fascista do not belong to the multitude of fops and skeptics who mean to belittle the social and political importance of women what does the vote matter you will have it but even when women did not vote and did not wish to vote in time past as in time present women had always a preponderant influence in shaping the destinies of humanity thus the women of fascissimo who bravely wear the glorious black shirt and gather round our standards are destined to write a splendid page of history to help with self-sacrifice and deeds italian fascissimo do not trust the little stuffed owls the yelling monkeys or indeed any representative of the lower zoological orders who believe they practice politics but could be called by a more infamous name do not believe those who talk of crises within the ranks of fascismo these are details mere episodes in the great event and they after all concern men not masses when fascista have not to strike the enemy they can well afford themselves the luxury of internal quarrels but if the enemy should begin to raise his head again and intensify the character of his more or less stupid opposition then fascisti will again become solidly united then woe to the vanquished applause and since the opportunity is propitious i would like to tell you woman of fascismo and the fascisti of all italy that the attempt to sever mussolini from fascismo or fascismo from mussolini is the most useless and grotesque attempt that could be conceived applause i am not so proud as to say that i who speak and fascismo are one but four years of history have now clearly shown that mussolini and fascismo are two aspects of the same thing and are two bodies and one soul or two souls in a single body i cannot forsake fascismo because i have created it i have reared it i have strengthened and i have chastened it and i still hold it in my fist always it is therefore quite useless for the old screech-owls of italian policy to pay me their foolish court i am too shrewd to fall into this ambush of the commercial mediocrities of village fairs i can assure you my dear friends that all these little vipers all these cheap politicians will be bitterly disillusioned to think that i could become brutalized in parliamentary bureaucracy is to believe in absurdity although i come from the working class i have a spirit too aristocratic not to feel disgust for low parliamentary maneuvers we shall continue our march vigorously added the honorable mussolini raising his voice because this has been imposed on us by destiny we shall not turn back nor shall we even mark time i have already said that we did not want to push matters to extremes only to see ourselves driven back by the swing of the pendulum i prefer as i wrote in an article which aroused some interest i prefer to march on continually day by day in the roman way in the way of rome who is never reconciled to defeat of rome who welcomed terentius varro coming from cannes although she knew he had given battle against the opinion of consul paulus aemilius and was in a certain degree responsible for the defeat 
of rome who after con forbade matrons to sally forth so that their grief-stricken bearing should not shake the strength of the citizens of this rome who rewrote continually the chapters of her history who found in every ill success the incentives to endurance to steadfastness to strengthen her spirits to harden her nerves to light the flame of passion this is the rome of whom we dream the rome in whom all hierarchies are respected those of strength beauty intelligence and human kindness the rome who struck hard at her enemies but then raised them up again and made them share her great destiny the rome who left the utmost liberty to the beliefs of her subject peoples provided only that they obeyed her giuseppe mazzini used to say that power is but the unity and perseverance of all efforts put together well italian power fascista power the power of all the new generations which expand in this superb spring of our life and history will be the result of the unity of our efforts of the tenacity of our work after all what do fascisti ask for they are not ambitious or factious they have the sense of limitation and of their responsibility and i am sure of interpreting your thought the deep craving of your soul if i say that fascista from the first to the last from the leaders to the lead ask only one thing to serve with humility with devotion with steadfastness our beloved mother country italy the speech was greeted with enthusiastic applause end of section 55 section 56 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. So long as these students and these universities exist, the nation cannot perish and become a slave, because universities smash feathers without allowing the forging of new ones. Speech delivered at the University of Padua on 3rd June 1923. Mr. Chancellor, professors, my young friends, it is not I who honor your university, it is your university which honors me, and I must confess that, although on account of my laborious dealings with men, I am a little refractory to emotions, today, being among you, I feel deeply touched. We have known each other for some time, from 1915, from the days of that May, always radiant. I remember that the students of Padua hung up at the doors of the university a big paper puppet representing a politician about whom I do not wish to express any opinion now. But that act meant that the youth of the University of Padua didn't want to hear about ignoble diplomatic bargains. Applause did not want to sell its splendid spiritual birthright for a more or less wretched mess of pottage. The University of Padua, the students who were not degenerate descendants of those Tuscan students who went out to die at Cutadone and Montanara, wished then to be the vanguard, to take up their post in the fighting line, carrying with them the reluctant ones, chastening the pusillanimous, overthrowing the government, and going out to fight, 
to sacrifice and death, but also to honor and glory. From that time I know that among you there are faithful followers and that this university among all the others is truly an active center of faith and of intense patriotism. If I look back for a moment to the rolling by of centuries, I recognize in this university a great fountain at which thousands of men of all countries, of all generations, of all races have quenched their thirst. The government which I have the honor to represent repudiates, at any rate in the person of its chief, the doctrine of materialism and the doctrines which claim to explain the very complex history of humanity only from the material point of view, to explain an episode, not the whole of history, an incident, not a doctrine. Well, this government prizes individual, spiritual and voluntary qualities, holds in high esteem the universities, because they represent so many glorious strong points in the life of the people. In fact, I do not hesitate to state that if Germany has been able to resist the powerful influence of Bolshevism, it is due, above all, to the strong university traditions of that people. A people with an ardent spirit and with genius like ours is necessarily a well-balanced and harmonious one. The government understands the enormous historic importance of universities, has a respect for the noble traditions and wishes to raise them to the heights of modern exigencies. All this cannot be done at once, as everything cannot be accomplished in six months. All that we are doing at present is to clear the ground from all the debris which the rotten political caste has left us as a sad inheritance. Applause. How could a government composed of former soldiers ever disparage universities? It would not only be absurd, but criminal. From the universities have come out by the thousands volunteers and by tens of thousands those magnificent warriors who used to assault the enemy's trenches with a superb contempt of death. They are our comrades, whose memory we bear engraved in our hearts. You will write their names on your gates of bronze, but their memory will be more imperishably engraved in our spirit. We cannot forget them, as we cannot forget that out of the universities came by thousands the black shirts, those black shirts who, at a given moment, put an end to the inglorious vicissitudes of Italian politics, who took by the throat with strong fingers all the old profiteers who appeared, to the exuberant impatience of the new Italian generations, always the more inadequate for their paralyzing decrepitude. Applause. Well, so long as there are universities in Italy, and there certainly will be for a long time, and so long as there are young men to attend these universities and to become acquainted with the history of yesterday, thus preparing the history of tomorrow, 
So long as there are such young men, the doors of the past are definitely shut. I guarantee it formally. But I add further that so long as these young men and these universities exist, the nation cannot perish. And it cannot become a slave because universities smash feathers without forging new ones. Applause. If tomorrow it were again necessary, either for causes arising within or without the frontiers, to sound again the trumpet of war, I am sure that the universities would again empty themselves to repopulate the trenches. Loud applause. And now that you have rejuvenated me by twenty years, I would like to sing with you the Gaudiamus Igitur. After all, Lorenzino dei Medici was right when he sang, How beautiful is youth! Well, my young friends, there can never be for us as individuals the certainty of tomorrow, but there is the supreme and magnificent certainty of tomorrow for us as a nation and as a people. And with the student's hymn, let us utter in Latin a simpler word, laboremus, to work with dignity, with probity, and with cheerfulness, to assort life with earnestness and to meet it as a mission, trying to fulfill the categorial injunction left us by our dead. They command us to obey and to serve, they command us discipline, sacrifice and obedience. We should really be the last of men if we failed to do our clear duty, but we shall not fail. I, who holds the pulse of the nation and who carefully counts its beats, I, who sometimes shudder in the face of the heavy responsibilities which I have assumed, feel in me a hope, nay, a vibration of a supreme certainty, which is this, that by the will of the leaders, by the determination of the people, and by the sacrifice of past, present and future generations, Imperial Italy, the Italy of our dreams, will be for us the reality of tomorrow. Loud applause. End of section 56. Section 57 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. June 8, 1923. Italy's foreign policy regarding German reparations. Hungary, Bulgaria, Austria, Yugoslavia, Turkey, Russia, Poland, and other countries. Speech delivered at the Senate on 8th June, 1923. Honorable Senators, the speech that I have the honor of delivering before your illustrious assembly may appear analytical, because in it I propose to touch on several questions and to speak decisively upon several problems especially with regard to internal policy. By this I do not delude myself to be able to convince those who are my opponents in mala fide, nor to disperse completely the small opposition which nourishes itself on detail and is the effect of personal temperament. You will not be surprised if I begin with foreign policy, even if it happens that this is the field in which serious and founded opposition does not exist, and it may be legitimately said that our policy is endorsed unanimously by the nation. 
as i have already said on other occasions the foreign policy of the present government is inspired by the necessity for a progressive revaluation of our diplomatic and political position in europe and in the world it is a fact that except for territorial acquisitions bounded by the brenner and the nevoso frontiers wrested by long and bloody wars italy was excluded in the peace of versailles and other successive treaties from all other benefits of an economic and colonial nature solemn pacts signed during the war have lapsed and have not been replaced the position of inferiority assigned to italy has weighed and still weighs heavily on the economic life of our people it is useless to dwell upon recriminations of the past we must rather seek to regain the ground in time lost there is no doubt that from october to today the situation has notably improved the other powers whether allied or not know that italy intends to follow an energetic and assiduous policy for the protection of her natural and vital interests intends to be present wherever directly or indirectly they are at stake because this is her right and her definite duty but at the same time she is in favor of that line of conduct and general policy which tends to bring back as quickly as possible to a normal state the economic situation of our continent italy who too is marching rapidly toward her readjustment sees this rebirth continually disturbed by general outside factors there is therefore a definite italian interest in hastening the pacific solution of the european crisis the position of italy and reparations all such crises since the treaty of versailles onwards have been dominated by the one problem reparations in the face of this problem the fundamental position of italy is as follows one germany can and must pay a sum which now seems universally fixed but which is very far from the many hundreds of milliards talked of on the morrow of the armistice two italy could not tolerate territorial changes which would lead to a political economic or military hegemony in europe three italy is prepared to bear her quota of sacrifice if it is necessary to obtain what is called european reconstruction four the italian government maintains today more than ever above all after the last german note that the problem of reparations and that of inter-allied debts are intimately connected and are in a certain sense interdependent there is no doubt that the occupation of the ruhr has contributed to render the crisis of the ruhr extremely acute and therefore to a certain extent hastened a solution it will not be inopportune to recall considering the rapidity of events that the french and belgians went to the ruhr on account of the declarations of a series of failures of the supplies in kind by germany admitted also by england at any rate as regards that of wood and the failure of the conference of paris it is certainly worth while to fix exactly in their essential lines the main features of the italian english and german projects in order to have a picture of the situation as regards its agreements and divergencies and to see what conjectures we can form as to a possible settlement this will also serve to explain why italy was not able to accept the bonar law scheme at paris why she had to reject the recent kuno rosenberg memorandum 
the italian project reduced the german debt to fifty milliards of gold marks proposed a moratorium of two years during which germany would continue the supply of reparations in kind accepted the distribution of german payments according to the quotas fixed at spa by which the italian quota was put at five milliards of gold marks fixed the payment of one part of the sea bonds by means of the security given by the other ex-enemy states used the remainder of the sea bonds to settle the debt to america agreed to the taking of economic pledges as a guarantee of the german payments and finally as regards the payments of the reparations owed by austria bulgaria and hungary asked for a pledge for the acceptance of the proposals which england had deferred putting forward proposals that is of annulling those debts the italian quota of reparations which the italian project fixed at five milliards of gold marks was thus reduced in the english project to less than half whilst cancelling the bonds it partly abolishes to our detriment solidarity responsibility for minor ex-enemy debts and rendered impossible the execution of the agreement of march nineteen twenty one which ensures important advantages to italy upon the basis of the sea bonds the larger percentage reserved on the seventeen milliards representing the interest of the moratorium capitalized to nineteen twenty three could not be used for the payment of american debts in consideration of the aleatory nature of these seventeen milliards i do not recall all this to reopen discussions but only to make clear the main outlines of that which was and remains a noteworthy attempt to find a solution for this grave problem an attempt which contains worthy elements which can be usefully taken up again in case of a definite settlement the conclusion of an agreement between england and america on the problem of debts the work of the then chancellor of the exchequer mr baldwin today prime minister followed shortly after the presentation of the english project any idea of this debt being itself cancelled or even of a simple compensation through the payment of reparations is excluded from this agreement the obligation to pay although facilities may be accorded concerning both the number of years in which it must take place and the interest due is solemnly affirmed and put into execution in england the speech from the throne strongly emphasized this agreement even taking into account the diversity of economic strength and the totality of sacrifices borne it could not remain without effect upon the importance of the whole question for the other european powers analysis of the german project if we compare the english and italian projects with the german the inacceptability of the latter appears evident as is known one of the fundamental points of the last german project concerns the consolidation of the actual debt of germany especially in kind at the figure of twenty milliard gold marks with an additional ten milliards the payment of which depends upon the decision of an international commission deducting the interest these twenty milliards are reduced to fifteen and the sums necessary must be found by international loans and in the very probable eventuality that by nineteen twenty seven the twenty milliards have not been subscribed an annuity will be paid which represents five per cent interest plus one per cent for the redemption of the loan finally in the german project any provision or regulation for the guarantees demanded is lacking the total german debt 
which in the english and the italian projects is fixed at the figure of fifty milliards in the german project is reduced to less than a third and it is difficult if not impossible to determine in it the italian quota and the sacrifice demanded from italy in view of the representations especially of england and italy germany has recognized her proposals as insufficient and yesterday the german ambassador norath presented to me the new german note on the contents and nature of which i cannot pronounce in opinion for evident reasons as in consequence of this note diplomatic action with all the allies must be taken up i will only say that the german note no longer demands the preliminary evacuation of the ruhr as a condition for negotiation this might make us believe in a renunciation on the part of germany of that passive resistance the utility of which even for german aims appears ever more doubtful and whose cessation would help toward a rapid attainment of a solution italy and hungary for the problem of reparations is not only franco-german it is also hungarian bulgarian and austrian it is useful to define the stage which has been reached with regard to these ex-enemy countries the total of the hungarian reparations which is fixed by the treaty of trianon has not yet been determined by the reparations commission and hungary up to this day has only furnished limited supplies in kind the hungarian government alleging the disturbed economic and financial conditions of the country caused by the serious depression of the krona has recently put forward the necessity to contract a foreign loan which if it is to secede should be guaranteed by the custom duties by the tobacco monopoly and if needs be by other resources hence arises the necessity for such resources to be freed for an adequate period from the claims of reparations a memorandum precisely to this effect has been recently presented by the hungarian minister in paris to the reparations commission the italian government having examined the question from a technical point of view has deemed it indispensable to concede to hungary the temporary relinquishment of certain resources so that she may proceed to her own economic restoration by means of loans to be contracted abroad italy has therefore shown herself favorable to the above hungarian request with the addition of certain conditions necessary to guarantee her own rights on which point she is in agreement with the british government agreement with bulgaria for payment with reference to bulgarian reparations italy great britain and france came to an agreement on the twenty first of march with the bulgarian government to facilitate the payment of her debt of two thousand two hundred and fifty million gold francs fixed by the treaty of Nuli, by dividing it in two parts one of five hundred and fifty millions to be paid by installments beginning in october of this year and the other seventeen hundred millions not to be claimed before thirty years bulgaria has pledged herself by this agreement to reserve for the regulation of her debt the revenues of her customs and has already passed a law to this effect the agreement has also been approved by the reparations commission with the reservation of our rights for the reimbursement of the expenses of the army of occupation in fact negotiations are proceeding with the bulgarian government for the regulation of this credit which enjoys the privilege of priority 
over other reparations our government animated by favorable dispositions as regards all that concerns the settlement of obligations arising from the war has had no difficulty in accepting such an agreement the loan to austria fulfilling the pledge taken by its predecessors in the protocol of geneva of fourth october nineteen twenty two the italian government has cooperated with the governments which are signatories of the protocol in order that the loan in favor of austria should have a large and ready success for this purpose the government has consented to postpone for twenty years which is the duration of the war loan her credits against austria for the recovery of damages and for bonds of food supply has given her own guarantee for twenty five per cent of a maximum loan of five hundred and eighty five million gold kronen and has authorized italian banks to contribute directly to the loan up to the maximum of two hundred million lire including the sixty-eight which italy had previously lent to austria and which by the terms of the protocol of geneva should have been repaid in cash putting off for a further period the exaction of austrian reparation and giving a guarantee and a direct and substantial contribution to the loan in favor of austria the italian government has wished to offer her cooperation toward the political independence and territorial integrity of the austrian republic to which the protocol of geneva refers and to which the united states of america also wish to contribute confidently subscribing for the first time to a european loan relations between italy and yugoslavia italy's political line of conduct towards the states of the little entente and in general towards the states recently created is substantially inspired by the necessity of exacting the respect and the scrupulous fulfillment of the treaties because given the present contingencies only such a policy can produce quick and pleasing results with regard to an economic settlement of the danubian states which would contribute to the larger one of central europe on several occasions the friendly and moderate policy of italy has followed such a course with satisfactory results with reference to such a policy the relations between italy and yugoslavia have a special importance the clear attitude taken by the government with regard to yugoslavia by proceeding to the definite enforcement of the treaty of rapallo has strengthened our legal position and we are able to rest any further development of our policy on a solid basis the enforcement of the agreements of santa margherita which has been necessarily laborious owing to the large extent of the field covered can be said however to proceed on the whole satisfactorily in spite of the initial difficulties encountered in any exceptional regime the economic system of the so-called special zone of zara is already in force for the evacuation of the remaining dalmatian territories and the various organizations for the regulation of all the intricate questions arising out of the agreements have been constituted Fiume. but naturally the most important question to solve is that of Fiume. as is known it offers the gravest difficulties since in order to ensure the future of the commercial life of the town there must be solved many complex problems of an economic nature which are often in opposition to those of a political character undoubtedly the recent long parliamentary crisis in yugoslavia 
which for a considerable time forced the government of belgrade to confine its attentions almost exclusively to internal problems has heavily weighed against the rapidity of the solution of such a question that government has repeatedly acquainted us with its wishes to solve the question in a satisfactory way as regards the sentiments and the interest of italy and has also frankly made known to us the real difficulties with which the government is faced in asking the populations interested to accept a solution in agreement with the italian point of view italo yugoslav commission with a view to ensure an atmosphere of greater quiet to the italo yugoslav commission the government of belgrade has in the meantime agreed to transfer the seat of the commission to rome the yugoslav delegation has arrived and between it and the italian delegation which is fulfilling its duty with a high sense of patriotism and political probity preliminary meetings have taken place with the object of fixing certain fundamental points before resuming official discussions so that the latter may proceed with the necessary speed without lapsing into a deplorable stagnation which would be otherwise inevitable in such an arduous task the conference of lausanne and the definite cession of castel rosso to italy the conference of lausanne which after the well-known suspension of last february resumed its proceedings on twenty third april is slowly completing them through the no small difficulties of various kinds caused by the delicacy and complexity of the questions under examination the course followed by the italian delegation under any circumstance has always been inspired by the most calm and impartial attitude and its efficacy has been recognized and generally appreciated at its just worth italy cannot help considering as her vital interest the speedy restoration of the normal state of trade in the east as well as the economic development and the general progress of all the peoples living on the shore of the eastern mediterranean although all the questions under discussion have not yet been solved at lausanne on some of them however which more directly affect our country an agreement satisfactory on the whole has been reached the government of angora has explicitly withdrawn the objection regarding the cession of the island of castel rosso to italy the possession on which on our part could in no way justify an eventual suspicion of italian aggressive aims with regard to turkey our flag which has already been saluted from the moment it appeared in the island as a symbol of peaceful well-being will in the future continue to protect a population which by plebiscite has entrusted itself to us the juridical protection of foreigners in turkey the italian government has also obtained the cancellation of those clauses with regard to our colonies in north africa which the agreements concluded after the libyan war had left in existence and at the same time the interests of libyan subjects residing in turkey whose rights had been equal to those of italian citizens were opportunely protected from the beginning of the conference the question of the juridical protection of foreigners has been of the greatest importance the conference has agreed in fixing the limits of such protection including it in a formula which establishes for a period of five years the appointment on the part of the turkish government of foreign judges who are authorized to receive complaints of the sentences and of the proceedings of turkish magistrates at lausanne there still remains under discussion 
certain important questions of general interest such as those relative to the management of the ottoman public debt and others of an economic nature which i hope may be quickly solved relations between italy and russia the present relations with russia are regulated by the italo-russian and italo-ukraine agreements of twenty sixth december nineteen twenty one a few days ago the projects for the conversion into law of the royal decree of thirty first january nineteen twenty two were presented to parliament by whom the said agreements had been approved though some opposition had been offered to their practical application this opposition gave the russians a pretext for violating the agreement we mean to remove these obstacles in order to render easier the economic relations between the two countries and pave the way for an understanding resting on a wider basis without excessive illusions but also without dangerous prejudices relations between the two countries which possess different economic systems present enormous difficulties they are however not unsurmountable if on both sides there is a good will to overcome them italian policy toward russia is clear and cannot give rise to misunderstanding the presentation before parliament of these decrees represents another proof of our intentions and gives us the right to expect from the government of moscow the scrupulous fulfillment of the pacts the execution of the pledge taken to abstain from any act hostile to our government and from whatsoever direct or indirect propaganda against the institutions of the kingdom relations between italy and the united states i do not think it is necessary considering the brevity of this speech to enter into further detail i will only say that the relations between the united states and italy are particularly cordial and i am glad to add that both the government and the american people have fully understood the new political situation in italy relations with poland and other countries the initiative of italy for the definite determination of the polish frontiers has cemented even more closely the bonds of cordial friendship which have united the two countries for centuries their collaboration continues to be strengthened on economic as well as on political grounds in these last days the polish government has placed important orders with italian manufacturers the conversations and the personal relations i have had with the ministers of austria of romania of hungary the recent journey of his royal majesty the king of england the commercial treaties concluded and to be concluded are other signs of that progressive revaluation of our diplomatic position which i referred to at the beginning of this speech improvement of the diplomatic and consular services the fascista government always were the object of this reevaluation as soon as it came into power instructed its representatives abroad to direct their policy outside the confines of the country to the renewed life of italy and to face immediately the problem of the means and the men for that end in fact the administration of foreign affairs in the face of so many difficulties from outside already possessed a great difficulty in our own constitution due to the scanty number of its elements the tools of our work which is so delicate abroad had to be renewed and rendered suitable as regards the increase in number of officials and the new conditions of italy for the momentous task which they are required to perform instructions have therefore been given with effect from the first days of november for the reorganization of the competition 
for the diplomatic and consular services and for interpreters in conclusion i wish to repeat that italian foreign policy while it intends to safeguard national interests wants at the same time to constitute a factor of equilibrium and peace in europe and by such a policy i think i interpret the tendencies and the needs of the italian people applause end of section fifty seven section fifty eight of mussolini as revealed in his political speeches section fifty eight the internal policy the internal policy speech delivered at the senate on eighth june nineteen twenty three after the one on foreign policy see page two ninety three honorable senators the problems of public order are problems of the authority of the state there is no real authority in the state if public order is not perfectly normal public order and authority of the state are therefore two aspects of the same problem i ask you if conditions have improved or become worse since last october improved some of you give an affirmative answer i too say they have improved although naturally i am far from being pessimistic and therefore from being discontented i feel that nothing ever goes well enough but gentlemen when one speaks of public order one must make comparisons even if they are disagreeable they are necessary unrest uneasiness and sedition are phenomena to be found not only in italy if we glance beyond our frontiers we have reason to repeat that if messini sweeps sparta does not laugh look at the vanquished peoples and note what happens in austria and in germany look at the victorious peoples and you will see that only yesterday there was a strike of public officials in belgium which has cost the treasury hundreds of millions of francs if then you glance at the neutral countries at spain you will find there too that life is not excessively bright and easy all this i say for those who at every small revolver shot fired in one of the twenty thousand villages of italy think that they have been wounded by a seventeen-inch shell a significant comparison but above all it is worth while to look at italy and consider on one side her conditions in the years nineteen eighteen to twenty and in the period following nineteen twenty to twenty one the dominating events of the former two years are the occupation of the factories the permanent strike of the officials belonging to public organizations carried out in rotation and by a displacement of all the powers of state authority assent and although the incident is extremely painful one must recall to mind that in the rank and file of that same glorious army of ours occurred an episode at ancona which proves how deeply sedition had worked its way into the body of the italian state the dominating event of the following two years is the punitive fascista experiment 
fascisti from sheer necessity went out to the assault of the towns in large armed bodies today all this is over today the officials of public organizations do not and will not strike assent when the fascista employees of the post and telegraph offices came to me to protest because my colleague the honorable colonna di cesaro had punished them i told them that if i had been minister of post and telegraphs i should have punished them twice and i added that just because they were fascisti they would have to recognize the necessity for a strict discipline assent the state renewed the conditions of public order reached their zenith of disintegration during the latter part of the year in august there were the anti-fascista strike which completely paralyzed the state this had no effect the fascista forces in its stead obtained success and from that time i said that the two must be made one and that since that state was destitute of all the attributes of virility while there was a state in power which was rising with great strength and capable of imposing discipline on the nation it was indispensable for the rising state to substitute itself by a revolutionary movement for the other state which was declining the august anti-fascista strike was followed by the fascista occupation of the towns of bologna and bolzona the authority of the state was a complete ruin there are no more reports of labor conflicts in the papers now the chamber and the conflicts i am sufficiently impartial to say that in these last days there has been a slight recrudescence of trouble what is its cause i tell you quite frankly the reopening of the chamber laughter the chamber is the place of questions by the spectacle it offers to the nation it sows seeds of conflict and discord amongst the impulsive and excitable masses further the attitude of a section of italian liberalism is a very welcome piece of good fortune for the subversive elements because they constitute for them unhoped for unexpected allies who blow enormous bubbles which i promise myself to prick with the pin of logic and sincerity before closing my speech assent then perhaps there is this that certain gentlemen when they found out that they had not to fear the law of fascismo or that of the government which is slower because it is bound to move in accordance with legal procedure resumed their bold attitude elimination of the subversive elements the measures adopted to restore public order are first of all the elimination of the so-called subversive elements there was much clamor after the hauling in of the nets but in reality it was only a very small affair of 2000 who were arrested those who are still in jail do not reach the figure of 150 they are in the hands of the judges they were elements of disorder and subversion 
On the morrow of each conflict, I gave the categorical order to confiscate the largest possible number of weapons of every sort and kind. This confiscation, which continues with the utmost energy, has given satisfactory results. Ascent. I had to repress every illegal act. The high grades of the national militia. There was another problem with regard to the national militia, namely the necessity of filling the superior posts, to which had to be appointed men coming from the army with a large personal military experience. This necessity had to be harmonized with the gratitude due to the small heads of the fascista, Squadrissimo, the body which by leaving thousands of glorious dead had crushed the subversive demagogic elements. We have solved this problem. All the ranks of the superior officers have been assigned to the officers coming from the regular army. All the inferior grades and those of sub-officers have been given to military men, to squadristi, who have previously seen military life. Moreover, statistics are always worth more than speeches. 97% of the officers of the militia, having a rank superior to that of seniore, come from the officers of the regular army. Out of about 230 officers superior to the rank of seniore, six are decorated with the military order of Savoy, two with gold medals, 130 with silver medals, 80 with bronze medals. As this is a day of explanations, even at the risk of abusing your patience, I must read the list of awards bestowed on the chiefs of the national militia. General Cesare de Bono, Field Marshal of the Regular Army, Three Silver Medals, Special Promotion for War Services, Carochi de Guerra, General Gandalfo, Field Marshal of the Regular Army, Two Silver Medals, Special Promotion for War Services, Honorable Cesare Maria de Vecchi, Four Silver Medals, Two Bronze Medals, Croce de Guerra, Italo Balbo, one silver medal, two Croce de Guerra, Gustavo Farah, the general well known through all Italy, one gold medal, two silver medals, special promotions for war services, Stringer, major general of the regular army, three silver medals, one bronze medal, disabled in the war. Ozol Clemente, Major General in the Regular Army, two silver medals, Croce de Guerra. Ceccherini, Major General in the Regular Army, three silver medals, two bronze medals, Zambone, Major General of the Regular Army, silver medal and bronze medal. Guglielmoti, Major General of the Regular Army, two silver medals. After these follow Jurati with two silver medals, Acerbo with three silver medals, Voices, Bravo, Caradona with three silver medals, Finzi with a silver medal and two Croce di Guerra. Not to embarrass the modesty of my friends, 
I shall not continue to read the list of these officers of the national militia. Laughter. But this is enough to prove to you that this is a serious institution. And I add that every day it becomes more so, because I mean that it shall be so, because all its chiefs mean it. It might be asked of us, why does the militia remain? I shall tell it to you at once, for a very simple reason, to defend fascismo at home and also abroad. The word abroad might alarm you. Well, I tell you that abroad there is a difficult atmosphere for Italian fascismo, difficult for the parties of the right, which, being formed of national elements, cannot feel enthusiasm for a movement that exalts our national qualities, difficult for the parties of the left, because those elements are our adversaries from the social point of view, knowing that the fascista movement is clearly anti-socialist. It is well, therefore, that it should be known that there is, in Italy, a mighty army of volunteers to defend that special form of political organization called fascismo. The militia, moreover, has the object of enabling the army to do its own work. The army must fight, must get ready for war. It must not do police work, especially of a political nature, except under absolutely exceptional circumstances of which now I do not wish to think, even hypothetically. As an example, I can tell you that last night, upon my personal instructions, a whole section of Leghorn was blockaded. Well, 100 carabiners and 300 black shirts sufficed, whilst the army, the official troops, were sleeping peacefully in their barracks, as was their duty and their right. Moreover, believe me, so long as in Italy they know that, besides some tens of thousands of faithful carabiners, there is this enormous force, attempts at revolt or at sedition will never be dared. Modifications to the statute law Finally, and this is a manoeuvre of the last few days, have burst forth in Italy the bold defenders of the statute, of liberty and of parliament. Laughter. It seems, listening to these gentlemen, who had for a long time forgotten the existence of the statute, even as a simple historical document, laughter, that the statute runs a serious risk and that one cannot even discuss nor examine it. Well, I think that none of you can consider Camilo Cavour as a Bolshevist and a fascista of 1848. Everybody knows that the constitutional movement of Piedmont was the work of Cavour. Everybody knows how the political constitution was granted. At Genoa, a tumult arose against the Jesuits, believed supporters of absolutism. A commission of Genoese went to Turin and asked for the expulsion of the Jesuits and the calling out of the civic guard. But Cavour replied, This is too little. The times are ripe for something more.
Cavour wrote in his paper, Il Risorgimento, the Constitution must be demanded, and this was promulgated on the 4th of March. In its preamble, it says, The statute is the fundamental, perpetual law of the monarchy. Four days afterwards, the first constitutional monarchy of coalition was formed with the moderate Balbo and the democratic Pareto. The phrase, the statute is the fundamental, perpetual and irrevocable law of the monarchy had wounded the ears of the democrats. Cavour hastened to interpret it in a relative sense. It is worthwhile to listen attentively to this paragraph of Cavour. How is it possible, he said, how can it be expected that the legislator would have wished to pledge himself and the nation not to make the slightest direct change to bring the smallest improvement to a political law? But this would mean the removal from the community of the power of revising the constitution. It would mean the deprival of the indispensable power of modifying its political form according to new social exigencies. This would be such an absurd idea that no one of those who cooperated in the making of this fundamental law could conceive it. A nation cannot renounce the power of changing by legal means its common law. After a short time, history had to register a first violation of the statute, which assumed, or presumed, that in order to become a member of parliament, it was necessary to be an Italian citizen. On the 16th of October, there was a division between the right, amongst which there were the moderates and the municipals, and the left, to which belonged the Democrats, called the Burnt Heads, and the Republicans. On the following day, these two parties were agreed in unanimously, proclaiming above the statute that all Italians could belong to the subalpine parliament. The first to benefit by this violation of the statute was Alessandro Manzoni, but he declined the mandate by a letter which represents a fine example of correctness and political probity. Approval Nobody, gentlemen, wishes to overthrow or destroy the statute, which rests solidly on firm foundations. But the inhabitants of this building from 1848 up to today have changed. There are other exigencies, other needs. There is no longer the Piedmontese Italy of 1848, and it is very strange to notice among the defenders of the statute those who have violated it in its fundamental laws, those who have curtailed the prerogatives of the crown, those who wanted the crown to be entirely outside the politics of the nation and to become a dead institution. Loud applause. The abolition of parliament. They say that this government does not like the chamber of deputies. Comments. They say that we want to abolish parliament and deprive it of all its essential attributes. It is timely to say that the collapse of parliament is not desired by me, nor by those who follow my ideas.
parliamentarism has been severely affected by two phenomena typical of our days. On one side, syndicalism. On the other, journalism. Syndicalism gathers by its various organizations all those who have special interests to protect, who wish to withdraw them from the manifest incompetence of the political assembly. Journalism represents the daily parliament, the daily platform where men coming from the universities, from science, industry, from the experience of life itself, dissect problems with a competence that is very seldom found on parliamentary benches. These two phenomena, typical of the last period of capitalist civilization, are those which have reduced the enormous importance which was attributed to parliament. To sum up, parliament can no longer contain all the life of the nations because modern life is exceptionally complicated and difficult. But this does not mean that we wish to abolish parliament. We wish rather to improve it, to make it more perfect, to make it a serious, if possible, a solemn institution. In fact, if I had wished to abolish parliament, I would not have introduced an electoral reform bill. This bill logically presupposes the elections and through these elections there will be deputies. Laughter. Who will form parliament? In 1924, therefore, there will be a parliament. But must the government be towed along by parliament? Must it be at the mercy of parliament? Must it be without a will or a head before parliament? I cannot admit that. The Great Fascista Council They say that fascismo has created duplicate institutions. These duplicates do not exist. The Great Fascista Council is not a duplicate of the Council of Ministers or above it. It met four times and never dealt with the problems which concerned the Council of Ministers. With what then did the Great Fascista Council deal? In the February meeting, it devoted itself to the national militia and Freemasonry. It paid a tribute to the Dalmatians and to the people of Fiume and dealt with fascismo abroad. In the March meeting, it arranged the ceremony for the anniversary of the foundation of Rome and dealt with syndicalism. In its fourth meeting, it devoted itself to the Congress of Turin and again to syndicalism. All the great problems dealing with state administration, with the reorganization of armed forces, with the reform of our judiciary circuits, with the reform of the schools, all the measures of a financial nature have been adopted directly by the responsible body, the Council of Ministers. And then, what is the Great Fascista Council? It is the organ of coordination between the responsible forces of the government and those of fascismo. Among all the organizations created after the October Revolution, the Great Fascista Council is the most characteristic, the most useful and the most efficient. I have abolished the high commissioners because they duplicated the prefects and also embarrassed the authority of the latter who alone have the right to wield authority. 
but I could never think of abolishing the great fascista council. Not even if tomorrow by chance the council of ministers were composed entirely of fascisti. Our magnanity must not be taken advantage of. This government, which is depicted as hostile to liberty, has been perhaps too generous. The October Revolution has not been bloodless for us. We have left dozens and dozens of dead. And who would have prevented us from doing in those days that which all revolutions have done? From freeing ourselves once for all from those who, taking advantage of our magnanimity, now render our task difficult. Only the socialists of the newspaper La Giustizia of Milan have had the courage to recognize that if they still exist, they owe it to us who did not wish that in the first moments of the march on Rome, the black shirts should be stained with Italian blood. But our generosity must not be taken advantage of. But nobody must hope for a crisis in fascismo, which is and will remain simply a formidable party. If you happen to notice that in one of its innumerable sections in Italy there is dissension, do not thus draw the conclusion that fascismo is in a state of crisis. When a party holds the government in its hands, it holds it. If it wishes to hold it because it possesses formidable forces to use to consolidate its power with increasing strength. Fascismo is a syndicalist movement which includes one million and a half of workmen and contadini who, I must say, in their praise, are those who give me no trouble. There is, moreover, a political body which has 550,000 members and I have asked to be relieved of at least 150,000. Laughter There is still a military section of 300,000 black shirts who are only waiting to be called. These bodies are all united by a kind of moral cement which might be called mystic and holy and through which, by touching certain keys, we would hear tomorrow the sound of certain trumpets. The associations which are included in fascismo. They ask us, Will you then camp out in Italy as an army of enemies which oppress the remainder of the population? Here we have the philosophy of force by consent. In the meanwhile, I have the pleasure to announce that imposing masses of men who deserve all the respect of the nation have joined fascismo, such as the Association of the Maimed and the Disabled, the National Association of Ex-Soldiers, in the wake of fascismo, moreover, are also included the families of the fallen in war. There are a great many members coming from the people in these three associations, whilst there is a great solidarity amongst these disabled ex-soldiers and families of the fallen in war. They represent millions of people, and in the face of this collaboration, must I go and simply seek all the fragments all the relics of the old traditional parties? Must I sell my spiritual birthright for a mess of pottage which might be offered to me by those who have followed no one in the country? Loud assent. No, I shall never do this. The collaboration I welcome.
If there is anybody who wishes to collaborate with me, I welcome him to my house. But if this collaborator has the air of a controlling inquisitor or of the expectant heir or of the man who lies in ambush with the object of being able at a given moment to record my mistakes, then I declare that I do not want to have anything to do with this collaboration. Bravo! Besides, there is a moral force in all this. What was the cause, after all, which affected Italian life in past years? Italy was passing through a transformation. There were never definite limits. Nobody had the courage to be what he should have been. There was the bourgeois who had socialistic airs. There was the socialist who had become a bourgeois up to his fingertips. The whole atmosphere was made up of half-tones of uncertainty. Well, fascismo seizes individuals by their necks and tells them, you must be what you are. If you are a bourgeois, you must remain such. You must be proud of your class because it has given a type to the activity of the world in the 19th century. Approval If you are a socialist, you must remain such, although facing the inevitable risk you run in that profession. Laughter Taxation and the discipline of the Italian population The sight which today the nation offers is satisfactory because the government exercises a stern and, if you like to say so, a cruel policy. It is compelled to dismiss by thousands its officials, judges, officers, railwomen, dock workers. And each dismissal represents a cause of trouble, of distress, of unrest to thousands of families. The government has been compelled to levy taxes which unavoidably hit large sections of the population. The Italian people are disciplined, silent and calm. They work and know that there is a government which governs and know, above all, that if this government hits cruelly certain sections of the Italian people, it does not do so out of caprice, but from the supreme necessity of national order. The government is one. Above this mass of people, there are the restless groups of practicing politicians. We must speak plainly. In Italy, there were several governments which, before the present one, always trembled before the journalist, the banker, the grandmaster of Freemasonry, before the head of the popular party, who remains more or less in the background. Applause. And it was enough for one of these ministers in partibus to knock at the door of the government, for the government to be struck by sudden paralysis. Well, all this is over. Many men gave themselves airs with the old governments, those I have not received but have reduced them to tears. Ascent. For the government is one. It knows no other government outside its own and watches attentively because one must not sleep when one governs. One must not neglect facts. One must keep before one's eyes all the panorama. Notice all the composition and decomposition, the changes of parties and of men. Sometimes it is necessary as a tactical measure to be circumspect, but political strategy 
at least mine, is intransigent and absolute. My only ambition is to make the Italian people strong, prosperous, great and free. I should have finished. In fact, I have finished. But I must still add something that concerns me a little personally. I do not deny to citizens what one might call the juice murmurandi, the right of grumbling, laughter. But one must not exaggerate, nor raise bogies, nor have one's ears always open to dangers which do not exist. And believe me, I do not get drunk with greatness. I would like, if it were possible, to get drunk with humility. Approval I am content simply to be a minister, nor have I ambitions which surpass the clearly defined sphere of my duties and of my responsibilities. And yet I, too, have an ambition. The more I know the Italian people, the more I bow before them. Ascent The more I come into deeper touch with the masses of the Italian people, the more I feel that they are really worthy of the respect of all the representatives of the nation. Ascent My ambition, honourable senators, is only one. For this, it does not matter if I work 14 or 16 hours a day. And it would not matter if I lost my life and I should not consider it a greater sacrifice than is due. My ambition is this. I wish to make the Italian people strong, prosperous, great and free. The end of the speech is hailed by a frantic and delirious ovation. All the senators rise and the tribune applauds loudly whilst the great majority of the senators go to congratulate the Honorable Mussolini. The sitting is adjourned. End of section 58 Section 59 of Mussolini as Revealed in His Political Speeches Section 59, 10th June 1923 As Sardinia has been great in war, so likewise will she be great in peace. Speech delivered from the Palazzo della Prefettura at Sansari, Sardinia, on 10th June 1923. Citizens of Sansari, proud people of Sardinia, the journey which I have made today is not, and should not be interpreted as, a ministerial tour. I intended to make a pilgrimage of devotion and love to your magnificent land. I have been told that, since 1870 to today, this is the first time that the head of the government addresses the people of Sansari assembled in this vast square. I deplore the fact that up to this day no prime minister, no minister, has felt the elementary duty of coming here to get to know you, your needs, to come and express to you how much Italy owes you. Applause. For months, for years, during the long years of our bloody sacrifice and of our sacred glory, the name of Sansari, consecrated to history by the bulletins of war, has echoed in the soul of all Italy. Those who followed the magnificent effort of our race, those who steeped themselves in the filth of the trenches, young men of my generation, proud and disdainful of death, all those who bear in their heart the faith of their country, all those, O men of the Sansari Brigade, O citizens of Sansari, pay you the tribute of a sign, of a testimony of infinite love. Applause.
What does it matter if some lazy bureaucrat has not yet taken into account your needs? Sansari has already passed gloriously into history. I was grieved today when I was told that this town has no water. It is very sad that a city of heroes has to endure thirst. Well, I promise you that you will have water. You have the right to have it. Applause. If the national government grants to you, as it will grant, the three or four millions necessary for this purpose, it will only have accomplished its duty, because while elsewhere young men with broad shoulders worked at the lathe, the people of Sardinia fought and died in the trenches. We intend to raise up again the towns and all the land, because he who has contributed to the war is more entitled to receive in peace. A few days ago, on the anniversary of the war, I went by aeroplane to the cemeteries of the Carso. There are many of your brothers who sleep in those cemeteries, the sleep which knows no awakening. I have known them, I have lived with them, I have suffered with them. They were magnificent, long-suffering. They did not complain, they endured, and when the tragic hour came for them to advance from the trenches, they were the first, and never asked why. Loud applause. The national government which I have the honor to direct is a government which counts upon you, and you can count upon it. It is a government sprung forth from a double victory of the people. It cannot, therefore, be against the working classes. It comes to you so that you may tell it frankly and loyally what are your needs. You have been forgotten and neglected for too long. In Rome they hardly knew of the existence of Sardinia. But since the war has revealed you to Italy, all Italians must remember Sardinia, not only in words, but in deeds. Loud applause. I am delighted. I am deeply moved by the reception which you have given me. I have looked you well in the face. I have recognized that you are superb shoots of this Italian race which was great when other people were not born, of this Italian race which three times gave our civilization to the barbarian world, of this Italian race which we wish to mold by all the struggles necessary for discipline, for work, for faith. Applause. I am sure that as Sardinia has been great in war, so likewise will she be great in peace. I salute you, O magnificent sons of this rugged, ferruginous, and so far forgotten island. I embrace all of you in spirit. It is not the head of the government who speaks to you. It is the brother, the fellow soldier of the trenches. Shout then with me. Long live the king! Long live Italy! Long live Sardinia! An enthusiastic ovation greeted the last words of Mussolini. End of section 59. Section 60 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. Section 60, 12th June 1923. Men pass away, maybe governments too, but Italy lives and will never die. Speech delivered at Cagliari, Sardinia on 12th June 1923 from the Palazzo della Prefettura. Citizens, black shirts, chivalrous people of Cagliari. Of late, I have visited several towns, including those which belong to the place where I was born. Well, I wish to tell you, and this is the truth, that no town accorded me the welcome you gave me today. I knew that the town of Cagliari was peopled by men of strong passions. I knew that an ardent spirit of regeneration throbbed in your hearts. 
the cheers with which you welcomed me, the crowd crammed into the Roman amphitheater, all this tells me that here, Fascissimo has deep roots. I thank you, therefore, citizens, from the depth of my heart. I have come to Sardinia not only to know your land, as forty-eight hours would not be enough for that purpose, and still less would they be enough to examine closely your needs. I know them. Statesmen have known them for the last fifty years. Those needs are already before the nation, and if up to today they have not yet been solved, this is due to the fact that Rome was lacking that iron will for regeneration, which is the pivot, the essence of the fascista government's faith in the future of our country. Applause. Passing through your land, I have found here a living, throbbing limb of the mother country. Truly this island of yours is the western bulwark of the nation. It is like a heart of Rome set in the midst of our sea. Amongst all the impressions I have received in coming here, one has struck my heart. I was told that Sardinia, for special local reasons, was refractory to Fascissimo. Here, too, there was another misunderstanding. But from today, the cohorts and the legions, the thousands of strong black shirts, the syndicates, the fasci, the whole youth of this island is there to show the Fascissimo, representing an irresistible movement for the regeneration of the race, was bound to carry with it this island where the Italian race is manifested so superbly. Applause. I salute you, black shirts. We saw each other in Rome, and the groups coming from Sardinia were cheered in the capital. You bear in your hearts the faith which at a given moment drove thousands and thousands of fascisti from all the cities, from all the villages of Italy, to Rome. Applause. Nobody can ever dream of wrenching from us the fruit of victory that we have paid for by so much blood generously shed by youths who offered their lives in order to crush Italian Bolshevism. Thousands and thousands of those who suffered martyrdom in the trenches, who have resumed the struggle after the war was over, who have won. All those have plowed a furrow between the Italy of yesterday, of today, and of tomorrow. Citizens of Cagliari, you must certainly play a part in this great drama. You undoubtedly wish to live the life of our great national community, of this, our beloved Italy, of this adorable mother who is our dream, our hope, our faith, our conviction, because men pass away, maybe governments too, but Italy lives and will never die. Loud applause. Today I have visited the marvelous works of the artificial Lake Tirso, they are not only a glory to Sardinia, they represent a masterpiece of which the whole nation may be proud. I feel, almost by intuition, that Sardinia also, too long forgotten, perhaps too patient, Sardinia today marches hand in hand with the rest of Italy. Let us then salute each other, O citizens. After this speech of mine, which was meant to be an act of devotion, a bond of union between us, let us salute each other by shouting, Long live the king! Cheers. Long live Italy! Cheers. Long live Fascissimo! Loud cheers. End of section 60. Section 61 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. Section 61. 13th June 1923. Fascissimo will bring a complete regeneration to your land. Speech delivered at Inglesias. Sardinia, at the Plaza Municipal, on 13th June, 1923. 
Citizens of Iglesias, Black Shirts, Fashati, your welcome, so cordial and so enthusiastic, surpasses any expectation. Iglesias has really been the cradle of Sardinian fascismo. From here sprang the first groups of black shirts. It was, therefore, my definite duty to come and get into touch with you. You deserve that the government should remember you, as in this island there is a large reservoir of faith and ardent patriotism. I go back to Rome with my heart overcome with emotion. Since Italy has been united, this is the first time that the head of the government is in direct touch with the people of Sardinia. Only one thing I regret, and that is that the shortness of my visit has not given me an opportunity of seeing more of your beautiful land, but I have formally pledged myself to come again and visit your towns and your villages. As the head of the government, I am glad to have found myself among industrious, quiet, and truly patient people who have been too long forgotten indeed almost considered as a faraway colony. It is well it should be known that Sardinia is one of the first regions of Italy, and it should be known, too, that she gave the largest contribution of lives to our glorious victory. As the head of the government, I am glad to find myself among the heroic black shirts and to have seen the splendid flourishing conditions of Facissimo, which will bring a complete regeneration to your land. Here said the Honorable Mussolini, putting his hand on the standard of Anglasius, which was hoisted near him. Here is the standard, the symbol of pure faith. I kiss it with fervor, and with the same fervor I embrace you, O magnificent people of Sardinia. Loud applause. End of section 61. Section 62 of Mussolini, as revealed in his political speeches. Section 62 19th June, 1923. As we have regained the mastery of the air, we do not want the sea to imprison us. Speech delivered at Florence from the balcony of the Palazzo Vecchio on 19th June, 1923. Black shirts of Florence and Tuscany. Fasciti, people, where shall I find the necessary words to express the fullness of my feelings at this moment? My words cannot but be inadequate for the purpose. Your solemn, enthusiastic welcome stirs me to the depths of my heart. But it is certain that it is not only to me that you pay this extraordinary honor, but also, I think, to the idea of which I have been the inflexible protagonist. Florence reminds me of the days when we were few. Deafening applause. Here we held the first glorious meetings of the Italian Fasci de Combattimento. You remember... We had often to interrupt our meeting to go out and drive away the base rabble. Bravo. Frantic applause. We were few then. Well, in spite of this huge crowd here assembled, I say that we are still few, not with regard to the enemies who have been put to flight forever, but with regard to the enormous task that lay before our Italy. Applause. I said that our enemies have been put to flight, as we shall no more do the honor of considering as enemies certain corpses of the Italian political world. Bravo! Who delude themselves that they still exist, simply because they abuse our generosity. Tell me then, black shirts of Tuscany and of Florence, were it necessary to begin again, should we begin again? Deafening applause and cries of yes, yes. This loud cry of yours, more than a promise, is an oath which seals forever the Italy of the past, 
the Italy of the swindlers, of the deceivers, of the pusillanimous, and opens the way to our Italy, the Italy whom we bear proudly in our hearts, who belongs to us, who represent the new generation, who adores strength, who is inspired by beauty, who is ready for anything when it is necessary to sacrifice herself to struggle and to die for the ideal. I tell you that Italy is going ahead. Two years ago, when the bestiality of the Red de Marjorie raged, only twenty airplanes entered for the Baraka Cup. Last year, there were thirty-five. This year, up to now, ninety. And as we have regained the mastery of the air, so we do not want the sea to imprison us. It must be, instead, the way for our necessary expansion in the world. Great applause. These, O oh fascisti, citizens, are the stupendous tasks which lie before us, and we shall not fail in our aim if each of you will engrave in his own heart the words by which is summed up the commandment of this ineffable hour of our history as a people. Work, which little by little must redeem us from foreign dependence. Harmony, which must make of the Italians one family. Discipline, by which at this given moment all Italians become one and march hand in hand toward the same goal. Black shirts, you feel that all the maneuvers of our adversaries tending to sever me from you are ridiculous and grotesque, and I hope it will not seem to you too proud a statement if I say that Facissimo, which I have guided on the consular roads of Rome, is solidly in our hand. Bravo. And if anybody should delude himself in this respect, I should only need to make a sign, to give an order, Annoy! Deafening applause. Raise up your standards. They have been consecrated by the sacred blood of our dead. When faith has thus been consecrated, it cannot fail, cannot die, will not die. Prolonged applause. End of section 62. Section 63 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. Section 63, 19 June 1923. I promise you and God is my witness, that I shall continue now and always to be a humble servant of our adored Italy. Speech delivered on 19th June, 1923, at Florence, in the historical Salon di Cinquecento, where the Municipal Council solemnly bestowed on Mussolini the freedom of the city of Florence. Mr. Mayor, Councillor, People of Florence, the capital for many centuries of Italian art, you will notice that, on account of the honor which you pay me, I feel moved. To be made a citizen of Florence, of this city which has left such indelible traces on the history of humanity, represents a memorable and dominating event in my life. I do not know if I am really worthy of so much honor. Cries of, yes, may God preserve you for the future of our Italy. Applause. What I have done up to now is not much. But, oh, citizens of Florence, my determination is unshakable. Bravo. Human nature, which is always weak, may fail, but not my spirit, which is dominated by a moral and material faith, the faith of the country. From the moment in which Italian Fascissimo raised its standards, lit its torches, cauterized the swords which infected the body of our divine country, we Italians, who felt proud to be Italians, Bravo, bravo, applause. 
are in spiritual communication through this new faith. Citizens of Florence, I make you a promise, and be sure I shall keep it. I promise you, and God is my witness in this moment of the purity of my faith. I promise you that I shall continue now and always to be a humble servant of our adored Italy. Prolonged applause. End of section 63. Section 64 of Mussolini, as revealed in his political speeches. Section 64, 25th June, 1923. The victory of the Piave was the deciding factor of the war. Speech delivered in Rome on 25th June, 1923, from Pazzo Venezia, in commemoration of the anniversary of the Battle of the Piave. Fellow soldiers, after your ranks, so well disciplined and of such fine bearing, have marched past His Majesty the King, the intangible symbol of the country, after the austere ceremony and its silent solemnity before the tomb of the unknown warrior, after this formidable display of sacred strength. Words from me are absolutely superfluous, and I do not intend to make a speech. The march of today is a manifestation full of significance and warning. A whole people in arms has met today in spirit in the Eternal City. It is a whole people who, above unavoidable party differences, finds itself strongly united when the safety of the common motherland is at stake. On the occasion of the Etna eruption, national solidarity was wonderfully manifested. From every town, every village, one might say from every hamlet, a fraternal heart-throb went out to the land stricken by calamity. Today, tens of thousands of soldiers, thousands of standards, with men coming to Rome from all parts of Italy and from the faraway colonies, from abroad, bear witness that the unity of the Italian nation is an accomplished and irrevocable fact. After seven months of government, to talk to you, my comrades of the trenches, is the highest honor which could fall to my lot. And I do not say this in order to flatter you, nor to pay you a tribute which might seem formal on an occasion like this. I have the right to interpret the thoughts of this meeting, which gathers to listen to my words as an expression of solidarity with the national government. Cries of assent. Let us not utter useless and fantastical words. Nobody attacks the sacred liberty of the Italian people. But I ask you, should there be liberty to maim victory? Cries of no, no. Should there be liberty to strike at the nation? Should there be liberty for those who have as their program the overthrow of our national institutions? Cries of no, no. I repeat what I explicitly said before. I do not feel myself infallible. I feel myself a man like you. I do not repulse, I cannot, I shall not repulse any loyal and sincere collaboration. Fellow soldiers, the task which weighs on my shoulders, but also on yours, is simply immense. And to it we shall be pledged for many years. It is, therefore, necessary not to waste, but to treasure and utilize all the energies which could be turned to the good of our country. Five years have passed since the Battle of the Piave. From that victory, on which it is impossible to sophisticate, either within or beyond the frontier, it is necessary to proclaim, for you who listen to me, 
and also for those who read what I say, that the victory of the Piave was the deciding factor of the war. On the Piave, the Austro-Hungarian Empire went to pieces. From the Piave started its flight on white wings the victory of the people in arms. The government means to exalt the spiritual strength which rises out of the victory of a people in arms. It does not mean to disperse them, because it represents the sacred seed of the future. The more distant we get from those days, from that memorable victory, the more they seem to us wonderful, the more the victory appears enveloped in a halo of legend. In such a victory, everybody would wish to have taken part. We must win the peace. Too late, somebody perceived that when the country is in danger, the duty of all citizens, from the highest to the lowest, is only one, to fight, to suffer, and, if needs be, to die. We have won the war. We have demolished an empire which threatened our frontiers, stifled us and held us forever under the extortion of armed menace. History has no end. Comrades, the history of peoples is not measured by years, but by tens of years, by centuries. This manifestation of yours is an infallible sign of the vitality of the Italian people. The phrase, we must win the peace, is not an empty one. It contains a profound truth. Peace is won by harmony, by work, and by discipline. This is the new gospel which has been opened before the eyes of the new generations who have come out of the trenches. A gospel simple and straightforward, which takes into account all the elements, which utilizes all the energies, which does not lend itself to tyrannies of grotesque exclusivism, because it has one sole aim, a common aim, the greatness and the salvation of the nation. Fellow soldiers, you have come to Rome, and it is natural, I dare to say, fated. Because Rome is always, as it will be tomorrow and in the centuries to come, the living heart of our race. It is the imperishable symbol of our vitality as a people. Who holds Rome holds the nation. The black shirts buried the past. I assure you, my fellow soldiers, that my government, in spite of the manifest or hidden difficulties, will keep its pledges. It is the government of Vittorio Veneto. You feel it, and you know it. And if you did not believe it, you would not be here assembled in this square. Carry back to your towns, to your lands, to your houses, distant but near to my heart, the vigorous impression of this meeting. Keep the flame burning, because that which has not been may be. Because if victory was maimed once, it does not follow that it can be maimed a second time. Loud cheers, repeated cries of, we swear it. I keep in mind your oath. I count upon you as I count upon all good Italians, but I count, above all, upon you, because you are of my generation, because you have come out from the bloody filth of the trenches, because you have lived and struggled and suffered in the face of death, because you have fulfilled your duty and have the right to vindicate that to which you are entitled, not only from the material but from the moral point of view. I tell you, I swear to you, that the time is past forever when fighters returning from the trenches had to be ashamed of themselves, the time when, owing to the threatening attitudes of communists, the officers received the cowardly advice to dress in plain clothes. Applause. All that is buried. You must not forget, and nobody forgets, 
that seven months ago, 52,000 armed black shirts came to Rome to bury the past. Loud cheers. Soldiers, fellow soldiers, let us raise before our great unknown comrade the cry which sums up our faith. Long live the king! Long live Italy! Victorious, impregnable, immortal! Loud cheers, whilst all the flags are raised and waved amidst the enthusiasm of the immense crowd in the square. End of section 64 Section 65 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. Section 65 28th June, 1923. The Relations Between Italy and the United States. Speech by the American Ambassador to Rome. On the 28th June, 1923, the Italo-American Association held in Rome a banquet in honor of Mr. Richard Washburn Child, American Ambassador to Italy, and of the Honorable Mussolini, President of the Italian Council. The two distinguished guests delivered the following speeches, which have a special importance both with regard to fascissimo and to Italo-American relations. The object of this meeting was clearly explained by the Honorable Baron Sardi, Italian Undersecretary of State for Public Works, in an appropriate address to the illustrious guests, published in full by the Bulletin of the Library for American Studies in Italy, Number 5, in which, after having thanked them in the name of Senator Ruffini, President of the Association, still detained on account of the important duties in Geneva, and also in the name of the other members, for the honor they conferred on the society by their presence, went on to lay stress on the purpose for which the association exists, namely, to promote a better reciprocal understanding between the American and Italian peoples through the manifold activities of their respective countries. The Honorable Sardi announced that during the summer months of this year, courses of preparation will be inaugurated again for American students who wish to come and visit our country and study our language literature, and history, while for next October, under the patronage of the American ambassador and the Italian premier, with the cooperation of American and Italian professors, special industrial and commercial courses are in preparation. The American students will be able to benefit by the use of the valuable library of the association, which is daily enriched by the competent work of commendatory Harry Nelson Gay and his collaborators. The Honorable Sardi, after referring to the fraternity of arms, which, during the Great War, brought together the soldiers of Italy and America, said that, having returned now to the peaceful spheres of industry and culture, these forms of effort contribute strongly to cement between the two countries that spiritual fraternity which arises out of a better mutual acquaintance with the respective virtues and qualities and a clearer realization of our aspirations. The orator concluded by expressing the wish that the Italo-American Association, by the indissolvable union of cultured minds, might be able to intensify the bonds already uniting the United States of America and Italy. Mr. President and gentlemen, it is my privilege to propose a toast to the King, and to the spirit of an Italy now stronger and more united than ever before. I wish to express the earnest hope that my country and yours will continue to stand together in upholding ideals which make men strong, instead of tolerating those which make men weak. During the last eight months, Italy has made an extraordinary contribution to the whole world by raising ideals of human courage, discipline, and responsibility. I would be unfaithful to my beliefs, 
and to those of hosts of Americans, if I fail to acknowledge the part played by your President of Council, Mussolini, with the people of Italy, in giving to all mankind an example of courageous national organization, founded upon the disciplined responsibility of the individual to the state, upon the abandonment of false hopes in feeble doctrines, and upon appeal to the full vigorous strength of the human spirit. We have heard a great deal in the last few years about the menace which war brings before the face of the world. I am confident that my people and your people are willing to act together to contribute anything possible to reduce the dangers of war. But I hold the belief, and I think your Premier holds the belief, that worse menaces than war now oppose the progress of mankind. Folly and weakness and decay are worse. These menaces of weaknesses are often fostered by men of good intentions who talk about the need to rescue mankind and about the necessity to establish the rights of mankind. I want to see leaders of men who, instead of teaching humanity to look outside themselves for help, will teach humanity that it has the power within itself to relieve its own distress. I want to see leaders who, instead of telling men of their rights, will lead them to take a full share of their responsibilities. I do not doubt that the spirit of benevolence is a precious possession of mankind, but a more precious possession is the spirit which raises the strength of humanity so that benevolence itself becomes less of a necessity. He who makes himself strong and calls upon others to be strong is even more kind and loving of the world than he who encourages men to seek dependence on forces outside themselves or upon impracticable plans for new social structures. I do not doubt the good faith of many of those who put forth theories of new arrangements of social, economic, and international structure, but they may all be sure that more important than any of these theories is individual responsibility and the growth and spread of self-reliance in the home and in the nation. I do not doubt that we, Italians and Americans, have a full appreciation of the pity which we ought to confer upon weak or wailing groups or nations or races which clamor for help or favor. But I trust that, even in the competition of peace or war, I shall be the last ever to believe that weak groups or nations or races are superior or are more worthy of my affection than those who mind their own business with industry, strength, and courage, and stand upon their own strong legs. I do not question the motives of many of those who, feeling affectionate regard for the welfare of their fellow men, hope for a structure of society in which international bodies shall hand down benefactions to communities, and communities shall hand down benefactions to individuals. I merely point out that some nations, such as yours and mine, are beginning to believe that these ideas come out of thoughts which, though easily adopted, are the offspring of a marriage of benevolence with ignorance. In any structure of society which can command our respect and our faith, the current of responsibilities runs the other way. The doctrine that the world's strength arises from the responsibility of the individual is a sterner doctrine. The leaders of men who insist upon it are those who will be owed an eternal debt by mankind. The strength of society must come from the bottom upward. The world needs now more than anything else the doctrine that the first place to develop strength is at home. The first duty is the nearest duty. 
a strong cooperation of nations can only be made of nations which are strong nations. A strong nation can only be made of good and strong individuals. When one makes the fascists, the first requirement is to find the individual rods, straight, strong, and wiry, such as you have found, Mr. President, and so skillfully bound together in the strength of unity. But if they had been rotten sticks, you could not have made the fascists. Unity in action would have been impossible. The rotten sticks would have fallen to pieces in your fingers. Mr. President, what the world needs is not better theories and dreams, but better men to carry them out. The world needs a spirit which thinks first of responsibilities before it thinks of rights. It was this spirit which you have done so much to awaken into new life in Italy. Not long ago I heard a speech made by a foreigner in Italy who was used to dealing with economic statistics. He was trying to account for the new life in Italy on the basis of comparative statistics. I told him he could not do it until he could produce statistics of the human spirit. I told him he could not account for everything in Italy until he could reduce to statistics that wonderful record of the human spirit which in scarcely more than half a century has created the new Italy. I told him he would have to account for the number of Italians who, in 1848 and 1859, in the Great War, and 1923, had a cause for which they were willing to die. I told him that I was always a nationalist before I was an internationalist, and I would go on being a nationalist, believing in the spirit of strong and upright and generous nationalism, and believing not in theorizing nations or whining peoples, but in nations and peoples who develop a national spirit so finely tempered that they offer to the world an example of organization, discipline, and fair play, because they themselves are upright and strong men and can contribute valuably to international cooperation. I said to him that when he could produce statistics on human virtues and human spirit, he would be nearer to understanding what made progress in the world. I asked him if he had figures to show the difference between nations which breed men who are ready to die for their beliefs and nations which produce no such men. I asked him to put his figures back in his pocket and go out and talk to the youth of Italy. Mr. President, the youth of Italy, as in any other country, are the trustees of the spirit of tomorrow. It is a fact which goes almost unnoticed that the training of masses of youth in the spirit of discipline and fair competition and of loyalty to a cause is largely to be found in athletic games. It is a fact which almost always is forgotten that nations of history or those of today which have engaged in athletic games are the strong nations and those which have had no athletes are the weak nations. It is a fact almost neglected that nations which can express their spirit of competition in athletics are the nations which have the least destructive restlessness within, and are the most fair, and indeed, are the most restrained in their dealings with other nations. Athletic games teach the lesson that every man who competes must win by reason of his own virtue. No help can come from without. There is no special privilege for anyone. He who wins does so by merit alone. Athletic games, whenever they are carried out by teams, teach the lesson that the individual must put aside his own interests for the good of his group. There must be a voluntary submission to discipline and absolute loyalty to a captain in order to avoid the humiliation of disorganization and defeat. 
Athletic games are not for the weak and complaining, but for the strong and for the lovers of fair play. Finally, they furnish oft-repeated lessons of the truth that when flesh and muscles and material agencies seem about to fail, human will and human spirit can work miracles of victory. Because I believe in these ideals for my own country and for yours, I offer, through you, for the purposes which the Olympic Committee of Italy will set forth, a small but friendly token of my deep interest in the youth of Italy. Loud applause. The Italian Prime Minister's Reply Mr. Ambassador, The discourse which Your Excellency has pronounced at this reunion strengthens the bonds of sympathy and fraternity between Italy and America and has profoundly interested me in my capacity as an Italian and as a fascista. As an Italian, because you have spoken frank words of cordial approval to the government which I have the honor to direct, I have no need to add that this cordiality is reciprocated by me and by all Italians. There is no doubt that the elements for a practical collaboration between the two countries exist. It is only a question of organizing this collaboration. Some things have been done, but more remains to be done. I will not surprise Your Excellency if I point out, without going into particulars, a problem which concerns us directly. I speak of the problem of emigration. I limit myself only to saying that Italy would greet with satisfaction an opening in the somewhat rigid meshes of the emigration bill so that there could be an increase in Italian emigration to North America and would greet with similar satisfaction the employment of American capital in Italian enterprises. As fascista, the words of Your Excellency have interested me because they reveal an exact understanding of the phenomena and of our movement, and constitute a sympathetic and powerful vindication of it. This fact is the more remarkable, because the fascissimo movement is so complex that the mind of a stranger is not always the best adapted to understand it. You, Mr. Ambassador, constitute the most brilliant exception to this rule. Your discourse, I say, contains all the philosophy of fascissimo and of the fascissimo endeavor, interwoven with an exaltation of strength, of beauty, of discipline, of authority, and of the sense of responsibility. You have been able to show, Mr. Ambassador, that in spite of the numerous difficulties of the general situation, fascissimo has kept faith to its promises given before the march on Rome. The time intervening since those promises were made has been short, so that only a stupid person would pretend that the work is already completed. I limit myself to saying that I find corroboration by Your Excellency that it is well begun. I am certain, Mr. Ambassador, that all Italians will read with emotion the words which you have pronounced on this memorable occasion. I ask you especially to believe this. I have heard, just now, not a discourse in the manner and strain of an ordinary conventional speech, but a clear and inspiring exposition of the conception of life and history which animates Italian fascissimo. I do not believe that I exaggerate when I say that this conception finds strong and numerous partisans even on the other side of the ocean, among the citizens of a people who have not the thousands of years of history behind them which we have, but who march today in the vanguard of human progress. In this affinity of conceptions, I find the solid basis for the paternal understanding between Italy and America. The announcement that you, Mr. Ambassador, 
are giving a wreath of gold to the Italian youth who will be victor in the next Olympic competition games, will win the hearts of all Italian athletes, and of those there are, as you know, innumerable legions. I thank your excellency in the name of Italian youth, almost all of whom have put on the black shirt, especially the young athletes, and at the same time that I encourage the Italo-American society to persevere in the execution of its splendid program, I declare that my government will do whatever is necessary to develop and strengthen the economic and political relations between the United States and Italy. I raise my glass to the health of President Harding and the fortunes of the great American people. Loud applause. End of section 65. Section 66 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. 2nd July 1923. The greatness of the country will be achieved by the new generations. Speech delivered 2nd July 1923 in Rome at the Palazzo Venezia before the schoolboys of Triste, Nicastro, Castel Gandolfo, Vetrala e Perugia, and their masters, who were accompanied by representatives of the Roman Balilas, and had come to Rome to pay homage at the tomb of the unknown warrior before which they laid a wreath of beaten iron and kneeling repeated the oath of love and loyalty to the king and the country. The Honorable Mussolini, with the Minister of War, General Diaz, the Under Secretary of State for the Presidency, the Honorable Acerbo, General De Bono, the Director General of Police, Signor Lombardo Radice, the Director General of Primary Schools, and other officials greeted them. The Honorable Mussolini thus addressed the meeting. On this radiant morning you have offered the capital a magnificent spectacle. Romans, having lived through many millenniums of history, are rather slow in being impressed by events and are not easily to be carried away by excessive enthusiasm. They have certainly, however, been filled today with admiration at the scene of promising youth, which are being offered them by the schoolboys here gathered from all parts of Italy, and especially from the Venezia Giulia, particularly dear to the heart of all Italians. It was well said that in the dark pre-war years, the schools of the National League, and in general, the schools entrusted to Italian masters, represented the center around which were nursed the hopes and the faith of the Italian race. I am glad to express to you the feelings of my brotherly sympathy. I am pleased to add that the national government, the fascista government, holds in high esteem the scholarly characteristics and has deep respect for the teachers of all grades, of all schools. The fascista government feels and knows that the greatness of the country, to which all of us must consecrate the best of our energies, will be achieved by the new generations. You, continued the Honorable Mussolini, turning especially to the masters, you must be the artificers, as you show you are, of this great Italian restoration. The task falls on you of blending together in increasing intimacy the intellectual life of the Italians who were slaves to Austria with that of the Italians who rose and sacrificed themselves by hundreds of thousands to break their fetters. You passed before the unknown warrior, and you certainly gathered his spirit. Take it to Triste, near the other great spirit of him who was the forerunner of your liberation and ours, Guglielmo Oberdan. 
loud applause end of section sixty six section sixty seven of mussolini as revealed in his political speeches third july nineteen twenty three the situation in the ruhr and other questions of foreign policy speech delivered third july nineteen twenty three at the council of ministers honorable ministers and colleagues from my last detailed declarations of foreign policy made at the senate up to today the salient events of international politics are the following the bulgarian coup d'etat the first is the bulgarian coup d'etat following which the opponents of the fascista government fell into certain paradoxical misunderstandings the end of stambuliski and the advent of zankov aroused a certain ferment in some of the countries of the little entente italy at once took a moderating action in the right quarters and the complications feared were averted the treaty of lausanne the signing of the peace treaty of lausanne seems eminent the situation in the roar in the last few days the situation in the roar has become aggravated on one side the passive resistance continues on the other the occupation is extended and intensified by measures of a nature increasingly political and military a general repercussion of this crisis which seems to have reached its acute stage is felt by the european exchanges which are all falling not excluding the english sovereign as compared with the dollar the attempt made by the pope so noble in his humanitarian and european aims has not modified the situation on the day after the letter to cardinal gaspari there was on the part of the french poncare's speech which had the unanimous approval of the senate and on the same day the fearful act of sabotage which cost the lives of many belgian soldiers all this does not represent a detente but an aggravation of the situation in the meanwhile following the solution of the belgian crisis it has been possible to resume diplomatic action italy participates directly in it and as soon as she sees the problem on its way to complete solution will signify her consent to those propositions of the memorandum of london from which none of the projects presented afterwards has departed that is to say connection of the problems of reparations with that of inter-allied debts sufficient moratorium to germany the fixing of a definite amount rational scheme for payment solid guarantees of an economic nature and hence renunciation on the part of france of the territorial occupation of the ruhr as for passive resistance the italian government thinks that it is not in germany's interest to prolong it because she cannot hope to weaken france nor can she delude herself that she may obtain outside help it is certainly necessary urgently to hasten the possibility of an agreement as the occupation of the roar has weighed heavily on the economic life of europe delaying its recovery fiume as to the question of fiume representations have been made to belgrade so that negotiations might be conducted more equably in view of the situation of the town and the necessity of putting on a normal footing the relations between the two countries the council approves the declarations of the honorable Mussolini. End of section 67. 
Section 68 of Mussolini as Revealed in His Political Speeches, 16th July, 1923, The Electoral Reform Bill. Speech delivered at the Chamber of Deputies on 16th July, 1923. Honorable gentlemen, I should have preferred to speak to this assembly on that question of foreign policy, which at this moment interests Italy and fills the world with excitement. I mean the roar. I should have proved that the action of Italy is autonomous and is inspired by the protection of our interests and also by the need generally felt to get out of a crisis which impoverishes and humiliates our continent. Assent. I promise myself to do so shortly if the chamber does not have the whim today of dying before its time. Laughter and prolonged comments. My speech will be calm and measured, although fundamentally forceful would be composed of two parts, one that I should like to call negative, and the other which I shall call positive. After all, I am not sorry that the discussion has gone little or far, beyond the limits in which it could have been confined. The discussion on the electoral bill has offered opportunity to the opposition to reveal itself, to move from all its sections, from all its benches, to an attack against the policy and the political system of my government. It will not surprise you, therefore, if, although not entering into details of all the speeches, I pick out from what has been said by the principal speakers those arguments and those propositions which I must definitely refute. Warning to the Popular Party As a speech by the Honorable Petrillo was favorable to the government, it is not worthwhile to busy ourselves with it. Laughter I shall give my attention to the speech delivered by the Honorable Gronke, a fine speech as regards its form, and perhaps still finer as regards its contents. The Honorable Gronke has once again offered the government a collaboration of convenience, as in those mariages de convenance, which do not last or which end in cessations. Common. Your collaboration, gentlemen of the Popular Party, largely consists of details omitted. Your party, too, shows the same weaknesses. You should set to work and clear them up. I do not know for how long these elements you wish to collaborate legally with the national government can still remain united with your party, together with those who would wish to do so but cannot, because their inmost feelings do not allow them this step and this collaboration. You certainly know me well enough to understand that, as far as political discussion goes, I am intransigent. The small fry of the two-fifths and of the three-quarters of some other fraction of this electoral arithmetic does not interest nor concern me. Politics cannot be compared to a retail business. Assent in comment. To be or not to be. I am such a poor electoralist that I could even let you have the thirty or forty deputies who satisfy you, but I do not give them to you, as this would be immoral, because it would represent a transaction which must be repugnant to your conscience, as it is to mine. Assent in common. In fact, I cannot accept a kind of Malthusian collaboration. Laughter and approval. The Russian and the Italian revolutions both tend to overcome all ideologies. The speech delivered by the Honorable Labriola was certainly powerful. He said that ministerial crises are a substitute for revolution. He should have said ersat, 
because substitutes since the war are of German origin. That is too like the opinion of a herbalist to be accepted. It may be that the want of ministerial crises lead to revolution, but here you have an example that shows how excessive ministerial crises lead also to revolution. But, above all, it astounded me to hear the Honorable Labriola still employ the old vocabulary of second-class socialist literature, speaking of bourgeoisie and proletariat, two entities clearly defined and perpetually in a state of antagonism. It is certainly true that there is not one bourgeoisie, but there are perhaps twenty-four or forty-eight bourgeoisies and under-bourgeoisies. The same can be said of the proletariat. What relation can there be between a workman of the fiat factory, specialized, refined, with tendencies and tastes already bourgeois, who earns thirty to fifty lire a day? What relation can there be between the so-called proletarian and the poor peasant of southern Italy, who despairingly scrapes his land burnt by the sun? Assent and comments. The Honorable Labriola has said that only the proletariat can give itself the luxury of a dictatorship. This is a mistake which is proved and can be proved. The only example of dictatorship is offered us by Russia. But the Honorable Labriola has written dozens of articles to prove that dictatorship does not exist in Russia, and that dictatorship is not of but upon the proletariat. All those who govern the Russian states are professors, lawyers, economists, literary men, men of talent, that is to say, men coming from the professional classes, from the bourgeoisie. The fault which the Honorable Labriola lays on us, finding an analogy between the methods and the evolution of the Russian and the Italian Revolution, does not exist. And here I make a simple statement of historical order. It is a fact that both revolutions tend to destroy all the ideologies and, in a certain sense, the liberal and democratic institutions which were the outcome of the French Revolution. Italy pulled herself together after Caporetto because the necessary discipline of war was imposed on her. During the last few days, use and abuse of a polemic method have been made, that of unearthing the writings and opinions of the past to employ them as a weapon in the present dispute. This is a very wretched system which I am going to use against those who have adopted it. In his speech, the Honorable Alessio has stated that the defeat of the central empires was due to the deficiency of the representative organs. This is a totally one-sided explanation. There has been a war. Millions of men have fought against the central empires and defeated them. Another mistake is to say that after Caporetto, Italy pulled herself together because she had regained her liberty. Nothing of the kind. The reason is that the necessary war discipline was imposed upon her. Loud applause on the right. I am not one of those who think that Caporetto was due entirely to the disintegration of the country in rear of the fighting front. It was a military reverse in its causes and development. But there is no doubt that the atmosphere of the country, an atmosphere of leniency and of excessive tolerance, has produced disturbing moral phenomena which must have contributed to our reverse. The dawn of Italian risorgimento came from the bourgeoisie of Naples. The other statement made by the Honorable Alessio that the Italian risorgimento represented the efforts of the Italian lower classes is superficial. Alas, it is not so. The Italian lower classes were absent and often hostile to it. 
the first dawn of the italian risorgimento came from naples from that bourgeoisie of intelligent and gallant professional men which in southern italy represents a class historically politically and morally well defined applause and assent those who at nola in eighteen twenty one hoisted the standard of revolution against the bourbons were two cavalry officers all the noble martiology of the italian risorgimento is formed out of the elements of the bourgeoisie nothing is sadder than the useless sacrifice of the bandiera brothers and when you think of the tragedy of carlo biscane you are thrilled applause i should like to deny that giuseppe massini himself can be included in democracy his methods were certainly not democratic he was very consistent in his aims but how many times was he not incoherent and changeable in his means the expedition to the crimea really prepared the way for the unity of italy and what about cavour i think that the event which really prepared the way for the unity of the country was the expedition to the crimea comment which represents one of the most noteworthy in history i recall it because it shows how in solemn hours the decision is left to one man who must consult only his own conscience applause and comment when general da bormida refused to sign the treaty of alliance with france and with england cavour on the same evening of the first of january eighteen fifty five signed it without consulting parliament or the council of ministers and signed it above all at his discretion without imposing any condition whatsoever it was a stroke of rashness that you might call sublime cavour himself recognized it and when writing to count odofredi he said i have taken a tremendous responsibility on my shoulders it does not matter let happen what may my conscience tells me that i have fulfilled a sacred duty when the soldiers of the small and valiant piedmont were on the point of leaving the discussion in the subalpine parliament took place and angelo boferio a kind of cavolotti of the time comment accused cavour of not having a definite political line of conduct it is really worth while to read part of this speech because it closely recalls the speeches which during the present week have been made in this hall our ministers said angelo boferio represent all ideas and all convictions at one time they become conservatives and withhold the jury from the press another time they ape the democrats and raise cries against usurpations of rome still another time they throw off the mask and become retrogrades in order to unite with austria angelo boferio ends with these really singular words where is in this system respect for convention and for constitutional morality and referring to the treaty he added may god preserve us from that sinister eventuality but if you agree to this treaty the prostitution of piedmont and the ruin of italy will be accomplished facts it is curious also that another powerful ideologist certainly sacred to the memory of all italians giuseppe massini was very much against this treaty even to the extent of calling deported the piedmontese soldiers who were leaving for the crimea and of exciting them to desert but garibaldi a far more practical leader had an intuition of the fundamental importance of the treaty of alliance between piedmont and western powers 
italy said garibaldi should lose no opportunity of unfurling her flag on the battlefield which might recall to european nations her political existence to-day you will certainly all agree in recognizing that history has shown that angelo boferio was in the wrong and camillo benzo count of cavour was entirely in the right assent the moral unity of the italian people the speech delivered by the honorable amendola is after that of the honorable labriola more worthy of being analyzed he said the italian people are affected by a moral and spiritual crisis which is certainly connected with our intervention with the war and with the after-war period and he concluded by suggesting that it is necessary to give this italian people its moral unity well we must be clear what means moral unity of the italian people a minimum common denominator a common field for action in which all the national parties meet and understand each other a general leveling of all opinions of all convictions of all parties for me it is sufficient that moral unity should exist in certain decisive hours of the life of the people we cannot expect to have it on all days and on all questions on the other hand I firmly believe that this moral fundamental unity of the Italian people is already at work. We ourselves see it realized, perhaps not so much by our political work as by the war, which has made Italians know one another and has thrown them together, making of this small peninsula of ours a kind of family. Many local boundaries which separated provinces and regions have disappeared. Now we must complete the work the honorable bentini speaking of the freedom of the press to which subject we will return later quoted the episode of garibaldi and dumas i fully approve the answer given garibaldi but i ask you if the newspaper independente had by chance published news concerning the movements of the garibaldian troops or discrediting the military action do you think that garibaldi would not have suppressed that paper assent in common we have the power we shall hold it and defend it against all but in the speech by the honorable bentini what is particularly singular is the confusion between tactics and political strategy to-day it is possible to win many battles and the war can be lost or won what happened you had brilliant tactical results but afterward you had not the courage of undertaking what was necessary to reach the final goal you conquered a great many outlying communes provinces and institutions and you did not understand that all this was perfectly useless if at a given moment you had not become masters of the brains of the heart of the nations interruptions on the extreme left if that is to say you had not the courage of making use of a political strategy to-day your chance is over and do not delude yourselves history offers certain chances only once assent on the extreme right but to understand this law it is necessary honorable gentlemen to keep before you two very simple considerations and they are these there has been a war which has shifted interests which has modified ideas which has exasperated feelings and there has also been a revolution to make a revolution it is not necessary to play the great drama of the arena we have left many dead on the roads to rome and naturally anybody who deludes himself is a fool we have the power and we shall hold it we shall defend it against anybody the revolution lies in this firm determination to hold power assent and comment 
the italian people under the domination of a liberticidal government groaning under the fetters of slavery and now i come to the practical side of this discussion they speak of liberty but what is this liberty does liberty exist after all it represents a philosophical and moral concept there are various manifestations of liberty liberty never existed the socialists have always denied it the liberty of work has never been admitted by you you have beaten the back leg when he presented himself at the factories when the other workmen were on strike applause interruptions by the extreme left but then it is really true and proved that the italian people are under the domination of a liberticidal government and groans in the fetters of slavery is mine a liberticidal government in the social field no i had the courage to transform the eight hours day into a law of the state comments on the extreme left do not despise this victory do not undervalue it assent i have approved all the social and pacifist conventions of washington what is this government done in the political field it is said that democracy lies where suffrage is widened well this government has maintained universal suffrage and although italian women who are intelligent enough to exact it had not done so i have given it be it only as regards the municipal elections to from six to eight millions of women no exceptional laws were passed comments on the extreme left and the regulation of the press is not an exceptional law you forget a very simple thing that the revolution has the right of defending itself approval from the right comments is there in russia liberty of association for those who are not bolsheviks no is there liberty of press for them no is there liberty of meeting a vote no applause comments on the extreme left you who are the defenders of the russian regime have not the right to protest against a regime like mine which cannot even distantly be compared with that of the bolsheviks approval on the right comments on the left i'm not gentlemen a despot who remains locked up in a castle protected by strong walls i circulate freely amongst the people without any concern whatsoever and i listen to them loud assent well the italian people up to now have not asked for liberty assent on the right comments on the extreme left at messina the population which surrounded my carrot said take us out of these wooden huts assent in sardinia you will notice that i am speaking of a region where fascismo has not tens of thousands of followers as in lombardy in sardinia at arbatax men came to me with drawn faces they surrounded me and pointing out to me a track with a putrid river among the marshy reeds said to me malaria is killing us they did not speak to me of liberty of the statute of the constitution it is the emigrants of the fascista revolution who create this idol which the italian people and now to foreign public opinion has largely dismantled loud applause on the right every day i receive dozens of committees and hundreds of applications are flung on my desk in which one might say that the urgent needs of each of the eight thousand communes of italy are represented well why should all these not come to me and say we suffer because you oppress us but there is a reason a fact to which i wish to draw your attention you say that the ex-soldiers fought for liberty 
how does it happen then that these ex-soldiers are in favor of a liberticidal government applause are force and consent antagonistic elements not at all in force there is already consent and consent is force in itself and for itself but tell me have you found on the face of the earth a government of whatsoever kind which claimed to make happy all the people it governed but this would mean the squaring of the circle whatever government be it even directed by men participating in the divine wisdom whatever measure it takes will make some people discontented and how can you check this discontent by force what is the state it is the police all your codes of law the laws themselves all your doctrines are nothing if at a given moment the police by their physical strength do not make felt the indestructible weight of the law comments and assent we do not want to abolish parliament they say that we want to abolish parliament no it is not true first of all we do not know what we could substitute for it comment parliaments the so-called technical councils are still in the embryonic stage maybe they represent some principles of life with such subjects one can never be dogmatic or explicit but in the face of today's state of affairs they represent only attempts maybe that in a second stage it may be possible to allot to these technical councils a portion of the legislative work but gentlemen i beg you to consider that fascismo is in favor of elections that is to say it calls for the elections in order to conquer the communes and the provinces it has called for them in order to send deputies to parliament it does not therefore seek to abolish parliament on the contrary as i said before and i repeat it the government wants to make of parliament a more serious if not more solemn institution it wants if possible to bridge over that hiatus which undeniably exists between fascismo and the country fascismo is not a transitory phenomenon do not hope that its life will be short gentlemen we must follow fascismo i will not say with love but with intelligence there must be no illusions how many times from these benches it was said that fascismo was a transitory phenomenon you saw it it is an imposing phenomenon which gathers in its followers one might say by millions it is the largest mass party which has ever existed in italy it has in itself some vital powerful force and since it is different from all others as regards its extent its organization its discipline do not hope that its life will be short today fascismo is going through the travail of a profound transformation you will ask when will fascismo grow up oh i do not wish it to grow up too soon laughter i prefer that it should continue still for some time as it has today till all are resigned to the fait accompli and have its fine armor and its virile warlike soul there is a fact which is rapidly transforming the essence of fascismo the fascista party on one side becomes a militia and on the other becomes an administration and a government it is incredible what a change the head of a squadra undergoes when he becomes an alderman or a mayor he understands that it is not possible to attack abruptly the communal budgets without preparation but that it is necessary to study them and devote himself to the administrative part which is a hard dry and difficult task applause and as the communes conquered by fascisti number now several thousands you will conclude that the transformation of fascismo into an organ of administration is 
taking place and will soon be an accomplished fact liberty must not be converted into license and license i shall never grant you ask when will this moral pressure of fascismo end i understand that you are anxious about it it is natural but it depends on you you know that i should be happy tomorrow to have in my government the direct representatives of the organized working classes i would like to have them with me i would like also to entrust them with a ministry which requires delicate handling so as to convince them that the administration of the state is a thing of the utmost complexity and difficulty that there is little to improvise that tabula rasa must not be made as in some revolutions because afterwards it is necessary to rebuild you cannot take a corporal of the division of petrograd and make him a general because afterwards you have to call in a brusilov comment to sum up so long as opponents exist who instead of resigning themselves to the fait accompli contemplate a reactionary movement we cannot disarm but i say further that the last experience after your attempt at the strike of last year must also have convinced you by now that the road will lead you to ruin whilst on the other hand you ought to take into account once and for all if you have in your veins a little marxist doctrine that there is a new situation to which if you are intelligent and watch over the interests of the classes you say you represent you should conform and moreover colombino who is a friend of ludovico d'aragona can say if i am an enemy of the working classes i dare him to deny my statement that six thousand workmen belonging to the italian metallurgic consortium work today because i helped them because i did my duty as citizen and head of the italian government comment and assent but liberty gentlemen must not be converted into license what they ask for is license and this i shall never grant loud applause and comment you can if you wish organize and march along in processions and i shall have you escorted but if you intend to throw stones at the carbineers or to pass through a street which is forbidden to do so you will find the state which opposes you if necessary by force loud applause on the right comment on the left close analysis of the electoral reform bill but this electoral law which harnesses us so much is it really a monster i declare it to you that were it a monster i should like to hand it over at once to a museum of monstrosities laughter this law of which i have traced the fundamental lines but which afterwards has been successively elaborated by my friend the honourable acervo and re-elaborated by the commission i do not know whether for better or for worse much laughter is a creation and like all creations of this world has its qualities and defects one must not condemn it as a whole it would be a great mistake you must consider i say this to you with absolute frankness that it is a law for us comments but it invokes principles which are ultra-democratic that of the state election schedule that of the national constituency which was the vindication of socialism as just now constantino lazari recalled you say that the struggle is impersonal that the elections will cause unrest but who tells you that the elections are near laughter prolonged comments the working of this law is such that a fourth part of the seats is guaranteed to the minorities while i think that calling the elections by the present law the minorities would perhaps be further sacrificed 
assent in common at any rate the impersonality of the struggle withholds from the same struggle that character of harshness which might preoccupy from the point of view of public order as things stand today, elections held on the eumenominal constituency or even on the proportional basis would certainly lead to excesses assent the government cannot accept conditions either you give it your confidence or deny it i declare that i shall not call elections until i am sure that they will be held in independence and order comment and applause i add that while on principle i am and must be intransigent i entrust myself in a certain sense as regards technical discussion to the competent elements in this hall there are very many competent elements they will say how this law can be even more abused or improved comment but this is the business of the chamber and the government declares to you that it does not refuse to accept those improvements which would render easier the exercise of the right to vote this concerns in a certain sense the popular party which must decide for itself i have spoken plainly but i must say not as plainly as has been spoken from these benches the government cannot accept conditions either you give it your confidence or you deny it assent in common on your vote will depend in a certain sense your fate i agree with all the speakers who have declared that the country wishes only to be left alone to work in peace with discipline and my government makes enormous efforts to achieve this result and will go on even if it has to strike its own followers because having wished for a strong state it is only just that we should be the first to experience the consequences of strength loud applause i have also the duty of telling you and i tell you from a debt of loyalty that on your vote depends in a certain sense your fate do not delude yourselves even in this field because nobody gets out of the constitution neither i nor the others as nobody can suppose that he is not amply guaranteed according to the spirit and the letter of the constitution comment and then if things are thus i tell you take into account this necessity do not let the country have once again the impression that parliament is far from the soul of the nation and that this parliament after having maneuvered for an entire week in a campaign of opposition has achieved sterile results at the end because this is the moment in which parliament and country can now be reconciled if this chance is lost tomorrow will be too late and if you feel it in the air you feel it in yourselves and then gentlemen do not hang on political labels do not stiffen yourselves in the formal coherence of the parties do not clutch at bits of straw as do the shipwrecked in the ocean hoping vainly to save themselves but listen to the secret and solemn warning of your conscience listen also to the incoercible voice of the nation the last words of the speech of the honorable mussolini which had been listened to all through with the greatest attention by the assembly and the tribunes are greeted by frantic repeated applause by the benches of the right by the center and by many deputies of the democratic left the ovation lasts for a long time and is intensified by that paid by all the tribunes when the applause is over all the members of the government shake hands with the president of the council while from the benches of the right all the deputies come down to congratulate the honorable mussolini among them the honorable ferra ex-minister of justice and the ex-prime ministers the honorable giolitti the honorable salandra the honorable orlando 
and the president of the chamber, the Honorable De Nicola, who exclaims it is the finest speech in the annals of parliamentary history. The sitting is suspended for half an hour. When it is resumed at 8.10, the Honorable Mussolini agrees to accept the order of the day proposed by La Russa, viz. the chamber, reaffirming its confidence in the government, approves the principles contained in the electoral reform bill, and passes to the discussion of the articles of the project. At 11.10, the operation of voting having been completed, the result is proclaimed, viz. the chamber of deputies votes in favor of the government by a large majority. The sitting is adjourned. End of section 68. Section 69 of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches. 29 August 1923. The massacre of the Italian delegation for the delimitation of the Greco-Albanian frontier. On the 27th of August, General Enrico Tellini, President of the International Commission for the Delimitation of the Greco-Albanian Frontier, the medical officer, Major Luigi Corti, and Lieutenant Mario Bonassini, members of the mission, were atrociously murdered in Greece while motoring from Giannina to Santi Quaranta. In consideration of preceding assassinations of all the concordat, information from different sources gathered on the scene of the massacre, and of the persistent campaign of libel and instigation on the part of the Greek press, against italy and the italian military mission the royal government the stefani agency informs us has come to the conclusion that the moral as well as implicitly the material responsibility of the massacre falls on the greek government on these grounds the head of the government certain of interpreting the sense of indignation of the whole italian nation has instructed commendatore mantagna minister at Athens, to present to Greece the following note containing Italy's demands. The Honorable Mussolini's note to Greece demands on behalf of Italy, one, apologies in the most ample and official form to be presented to the Italian government at the Royal Italian Legation at Athens through the highest Greek authority, two, solemn funeral ceremony for the victims of the massacre to be celebrated in the Catholic Cathedral at Athens with the presence of all the members of the Greek government. 3. Honors to the Italian flag to be paid by the Hellenic fleet in the Bay of the Piraeus to one of our naval divisions, which will proceed there purposely, and this by means of a salute of 21 shots fired by the Hellenic ships, whilst the Greek fleet flies the Italian flag from the masthead. 4. A strict inquiry will be held by the Greek authorities on the scene of the massacre, with the assistance of the Royal Military Italian Attaché, Colonel Perone, for whose personal safety the Hellenic government holds itself absolutely responsible. Such an inquiry will have to be conducted within five days of the acceptance of these demands. 5. Capital punishment of the guilty. 6. Indemnity of 50 million Italian lire, about 500,000 pounds, to be paid within five days of the presentation of this note. 7. Military honors to the remains of the victims upon their embarkation at Prevesa on Italian warships. Mussolini. Rome, Palazzo Cigge, 29th August, 1923. 
End of section 69. End of Mussolini as revealed in his political speeches, November 1914 through August 1923 by Benito Mussolini. Translated by Bernardo Quaranta de San Severino.